More human than human. We've just been watching Blade Runner. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And welcome to the 250, your fortnightly look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. So this week, as Andrew mentioned, we were talking about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, the iconic 1982 science fiction classic. So, Andrew, what did you make of it? I enjoyed it. You enjoyed I, it greatly. Had you, well, let's, let's I, talk... I had, I'd seen it before. All right. When did you see it? What was the sort of like... Because keep in mind, one of the things that when we picked Blade Runner, we mentioned this last week, was when you watch Blade Runner, you are basically choosing to watch one of... I think it may actually be up to seven cuts of the movie, but I'm only aware of five different cuts of this movie. Which version had you seen before, do you think? Or can you remember? I have no, I have no idea. I feel like this version of the podcast, um, where, 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 where I'm quite sick... Is 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 going to mean a a a lot more um, Darren and and very little of me <laughs> than usual. Yeah, um, which is probably a good thing because I I've, I've, I I do have a tendency to interrupt. No, you don't. Not at all. But anyway, um, Darren says, cutting quickly across Andrew. Um, yeah, no, I I'd, I'd seen this uh, when I was a kid. Actually, I remember, and this is one of the things that when it came up, I was thinking about was to get a little personal because when we were younger, I remember when we were in secondary school. Did you have Mr. Keneally for technical drawing? Yeah, yeah, I think I did. All right, for anybody who doesn't know what technical drawing is, it's a, it's a class that we do as part of our, our exams where we spend three years learning to draw straight lines and connect them across various grids. Mm. Uh, for some reason, it takes three years. Uh, when we were in school, um, we went to... Well, we went to what was not necessarily the highest caliber of school or the most respected academic establishment. But I, I quite enjoyed my time there. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was I had a teacher, Mr. Keneally who would do technical drawing, where he would draw something on the board in the first five minutes of his class. For the remaining 40 minutes, the rest of the class would then try and draw it. But then he would sit down and wax philosophical about whatever was on his mind. And I remember one of these days, so it was usually, say, football. It was, they were big fans of Liverpool or, or Arsenal or something. But one time I remember him waxing lyrical about Blade Runner. Uh, really? Which basically amounted to him having caught a screening of it on RT2. Because remember when movies used to be on television? And he used to have to, like, schedule them or catch them or look ahead of time to yeah, see them on their own. Yeah, or you'd record them. Yeah, or, like, you'd have to stay up until the wee hours of the morning to see it. Like, I remember when I was younger, it was a lot harder to see good movies. It was always strange as well, watching watching things that you have recorded years ago, putting it on and there being all these old adverts. Yes, things. for things that no longer exist. Yeah. Or for things that you can't believe ever existed. Like, is it Johnny Rotten selling I Can't Believe It's Not Butter? Or utterly oh, buggery, yeah. uh, which is, is amazing. But yeah, so that was sort of my memory of it. I remember seeing it on RT2, uh, which was kind of like the, the second channel that we had here. And I would have been about 12 at the time, so I had no idea what to make of it when I was watching it. Okay. Because it's not in... Well, there's a lot of debate about which version of the movie is best to watch. And the general consensus is the original theatrical cut is not great, which I would agree with. The director's cut kind of throws you in the deep end. Like, it, there are times when even, I've seen this movie several times, I have difficulty following what's happening and, and why. Or what a character's motivation is necessarily from scene to scene. Like, it's a very interior, very restrained sort of film. I think that when I was 12, I didn't quite get that. I think I had a bit of difficulty following that, you know? In terms of what Blade Runner is about, in case you haven't seen it, um, the it's a movie directed by Ridley Scott. Um, it was written in, it was directed in 1982. It stars Harrison Ford. At this point, he was hot off his run from Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, looking to extend his dramatic range. So he decided he'd star in a different kind of pulpy film. 
In this film, he plays the part of Rick Deckard, who it's is... not that different, though, is it? No, it's not at all. Um, just, I love Harrison Ford dearly, but you get a sense, looking at his output, that he doesn't necessarily have the greatest sense of range. He's sort of like Robert Redford, almost, in that he embodies that kind of American ideal. Uh, but he doesn't necessarily... He's not a great actor, but he's a wonderful star, almost, is probably the best way to describe it. And I think that, like, there's... He's something that people like. And yeah. I, I don't know how much the kind of persona of Harrison Ford, how 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 much that is actually like what he is as as, as, as a person. Because he, he, he has this sort of... It's it's kind of the same character kind of true 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 throughout yeah. the, the the movies he's he's been in whether it's um Air Force 1 yeah. or um or Star Wars or Indiana Jones it's this sort of rugged masculinity sort of thing What's it's, that what's that one where where Tommy Lee Jones Oh the Fugitive the Fugitive Also yeah. Patriot Games and stuff like that like Yeah Harrison Ford sort of embodies this rugged sense of American masculinity even a witness even witness isn't really that yeah, far removed. Yeah, but he's is... he's he's actually this kind of just um, stoner <laughs> guy in his spare time. Yeah, he just loves smoking pot. And, yeah, um, yeah. But, but he he never plays that in any of his <laughs> movies. Yeah, Ke- Harrison Ford has a reputation for being occasionally difficult to work with. Andrew was startled to discover that they're actually making a sequel to Blade Runner, uh, which is Blade Runner twenty forty nine. But there's a great Harrison Ford story in there, which is. One of my favourite Harrison Ford stories of the multiple Harrison Ford stories. Where Ryan Gosling was filming a scene with Ford, right? And in the scene, Ford's character was supposed to punch Gosling in the face. Now, it was supposed to be like a stage punch where you you open your fist and it's got a bit of air in it. So it makes a sound when it hits, but it doesn't make any harm. However, Ford was not having any of that and proceeded to deck uh, Gosling in the face. Gosling was... He deck him hard. He deck hard. Yeah, he decked him pretty hard. But uh, Gosling was, was floored by this. Uh, a local member of the, the, basically somebody on staff, ran over with a bag of ice, gave it to Gosling to apply to his, his cheek and his eye, at which point Ford being Ford grabbed the bag of ice off him and used it to ease his pain, his pain no- muscles, so his pain knuckles, <laughs> while Gosling is there nursing his, his face. Apparently a couple hours later, while Gosling was in his trailer, he got a knock on the door and it turned out it was Ford. Maybe somebody had said to him, look, Maybe stealing Ryan Gosling's ice was not the best idea. So Ford was standing there with a glass in one hand and a bottle of whiskey in the other. He proceeded to hand Gosling the glass, pour him a glass of whiskey, and then walk off swigging from the bottle himself. Gosling describes as it was a painful and and traumatic experience of meeting his heroes, but at least he has a really kick-ass Harrison Ford story now. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that he poured two glasses and drank both of them himself. <laughs> himself yeah. um, which would actually be a reference almost to a scene in Blade Runner. Um, but no, it is, I think... S- so much drinking. There is so much drinking. But also remaining functional while doing it. Um, you never get the sense that, like... De- difficult. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You never get the sense that Deckard is completely sloshed. He's like, he's, he's got a sense that he sort of found his level of functional alcoholism, really. But anyway, so he is a Blade Runner, uh, which is the technical term that is applied to members of the police department who hunt down replicants, uh, which are robots created by the Tyrell Corporation with a four-year built-in, in, you know, live by date. retirement planners. Yes, uh, which is the euphemism that they use uh, to describe it. It's not called execution, it's called retirement. retirement um, which is great, because you imagine... When Harrison Ford was young and less jaded, or when Deckard was young and less jaded, he used to say, damn it, that robot was two days away from retirement. 
Yeah. So they're hunting these replicants. It's, it's the 21st century. It is. The distant future of 2019. 2019. Or two years into a Trump presidency. But yeah, so basically the, the plot of the film finds him hunting down these four skin jobs, is, is what they're called. And while trying to figure out what those skin jobs want. So before we jump into the spoiler zone, Andrew, would you recommend it? Is it worth watching? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, I guess I would. I, I mean... I wouldn't actually rave uh, about this movie okay. too much, but I mean, I, I, I thought it was good. Yeah. I realize it's physically painful for you to talk at the moment, so, <laughs> it is. Uh, but I'm still going to press you on that a little bit. What, when you say you wouldn't rave about it, what would hold back, what would disqualify the raving for you? Maybe it's this particular viewing. <laughs> um, I, I remember the movie being more profound. Oh, okay. And um, I, I, I don't know if I, I, I only feel like I got a very slight sense of that this time. I um, do. I actually, funny you should mention that. I think there are certain elements of it that maybe played better when I was a teenager watching it. Like for all I was confused by it, I think that there are certain points that when you're a teenager, you're like, whoa, mind blowing. Uh, but I think when you watch it as an adult, that some of those aspects are less profound than than they were like i think that there's a lot of the film that maybe isn't uh, isn't necessarily as enlightening to me now as it was when i first saw it now i don't know if that's a problem like i don't i i still think it's a beautiful film i still think it's a very clever film i still think it's exceptionally well produced i think it's got a great soundtrack i think it, it's visual it's storytelling is, is pretty basic but the performances are, are generally quite great i think that um rucker Hauer in particular is, oh, is amazing yeah. Um, and even though he has a very tiny part, little details like, say, Edward James almost as the mysterious gaff. I don't know. I just, I love the feel of it, the texture of it, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm confused at this moment about what it was about and what was it saying. Um, okay. And um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. I guess when we're in the spoiler zone, but um, yeah, it it didn't it didn't really kind of um, hit uh, hit me with any great kind of sense of meaning or purpose. Okay, um, I guess. I mean, to be fair, that's that's a very common argument I have from I've seen from people who weren't overly enamored with it. So I think everyone accepts it's a beautiful film. I think that may even have been the point that Mr. Keneally made on that day all those years ago. Oh, about was, how beautiful it was. Well, about more about he didn't see what the fuss was about. Oh, he didn't see what the fuss was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and I think that yeah, I remember having a somewhat when I was a young pipsqueak having a sort of a an argument to the extent that yes, it was a life changing, profound statement on the meaning of existence, which maybe may not have been the best uh, argument I could have made. I think at some point watching the movie, I did think that I I I did think. Is this is this a profound um, statement about the meaning of existence, <laughs> or is it an excuse to watch Harrison Ford drink a lot of whiskey yeah, in very stylish surroundings? I guess it could be both. Yeah, who? Why not be exclusionary? All right, so we'll talk about that in a bit more depth now. So we're going to enter the spoiler zone, possibly with a saxophone solo. But, uh, all right, so you mentioned this, so let's that, that sort of jump right on this. So what do you think Blade Runner's about? What is Blade Runner about for you? I suppose what, what makes us 
what makes us human maybe i feel i feel like oftentimes when 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 talking about um um artificial versions of humans um it's uh, it becomes a, a a very obvious theme to talk about what well what makes us human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyond the biological minerals of our composition. Right? Yeah. So is there an innate humanness? What is a soul? What is a personality? What is a conscience? Yeah. What is a mind? And the the, the um in in this movie, it seems like replicants are like they're they're not they're not machines. Yes, this is they're, actually something I find interesting. Which is... They have brains and what. Well, yeah, they can, they can't be. They, they can develop feelings. They're, they're they're they can't be detected by simple biological tests. Like it isn't like you do a blood test or you take a fingerprint. Is, they're essentially you, human beings, aren't yeah. they? The implication. And persons. This is the thing that I, I actually, when I was watching it this time, something that kind of dawned on me. Despite the fact that we we tend to think of them as robots, and because they're described as replicants, I, hmm. I think we read that. But the fact that they're designed genetically, for example, like their eyes are grown, they can't be, they're discerned through a psychological test rather than a biological test. Part of me wonders, are they, are they like a genetically engineered slave race? So like, for example, um, they're, are they, they don't, they don't seem to have metal skeletons, they don't seem to be robotic, they don't seem to be engineered, they seem to be like biological entities that were grown and that were programmed and that were sort of coded in DNA and their eyes are manufactured by like James Hong in Chinatown. Like, part of me wonders... James Hong is Tia Carrera's uh, character's father, uh, from, father Wayne's... from Wayne's World too. Yeah, and, and has appeared in, in virtually every every movie ever. Um, oh, yeah, I think for, for, for a while he was the go-to guy. When you much. needed an Asian man of a certain age or, or, dis, or depiction, yes. Yeah. Um, and he is actually, he's a great actor. And it's it's really strange seeing him in small roles as somebody who isn't somebody's father. Because uh, he's been around for, for what seems like forever. But yeah, like I, I think there's the indication, and I'm not sure how subtle or how overt or how intentional it is, that like, although they're talked about in terms that suggest that they're robots, they may actually be clones or they may actually be um, like people grown in labs. And there's this sort of blur between what's human and what isn't human. I wonder wh- whether whether there was some kind of an allegory for uh, like lower status human beings. Oh, there is. Well, I mean, for, ev- like um, like issues of r- race, race and or gender. religion or gender. Yeah, whether whether. Well, I mean, that's that's a feature, arguably, of of the robot genre. You know, dating back to to or you or, which is the short story that invented invented the term robot, and like it's particularly evident, say Westworld and stuff like that. Like, I mean, or Ex Machina, for example. Okay. Well, I mean, like, even in terms of here, like, um, Roy Batty, uh, basically, when he's when he's wrestling with Deckard at the end, he, he talks about how it is to live in fear, and that's the life of a slave. Yeah. And the idea that the replicants are, they fight wars, they load, uh, they load gunships, like, Leon carries ammunition. Pris is is apparently like a, a prostitute. Basically, is is what it's heavily implied. She's a pleasure model for soldiers on the on the fringe. You know the idea that they do the jobs that normal people don't do, or that we don't consider upper class people to do. Mexicans. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, even even stuff like say, so like, have you seen Ex Machina and stuff like that? Have you seen? I have. I have seen Ex Machina. But there's this idea of using the robot as as a way to explore the other, the experience of the oppressed other uh, in yeah. popular culture. And I think there are definitely elements of that in um, in this. Like I think there's definitely a sense of what it means when you define somebody as being less than human, and and what the consequences of that are. 
and how that affects society. Because I think, like, there are points when Pris arrives at the house of Sebastian, for example. Like, that's juxtaposed against the images that, that recur throughout the film of the geisha girl, who's, like, presented in a really heavily sexualized manner, popping the pill into her mouth in order to sell products and stuff like that. There's this question of, like, do we dehumanize? Do we sort of, uh, you know, do we commodify these things? You know, do we commodify people? Have people become something that we trade and we buy and we sell? Because, I mean, it's even there in, say, the animals, for example, which are, like, the, the snake and the owl, which are presented as something very expensive. One of the things about the, the world of Blade Runner is the idea that man has all but destroyed his natural world. So, like, when when Leon is being, like, asked at the start of the film to imagine a tortoise, he doesn't know what a tortoise is. He knows what a turtle is, but he's never seen one. When Descartes sees the owl, he says, is it artificial? And, and uh, Rachel replies, of course it is. And he goes, must have been expensive. And then later on you find that people manufacture snakes and stuff like that. And when he asks um, the dancer whether or not she could, uh, whether it's a real snake, her response is, if I could afford a real snake, I wouldn't be here. Like there's this sense that... Oh, does she? She does, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be dancing. I thought the, the, um, that the artificial snake was really expensive as well, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Like, it was there's the top only of the line so many mom. people who can afford this yeah. uh, snake. But yeah. a real snake is even more expensive. Yeah. But I think there's there's this sense of, like, Blade Runner sort of has this idea, and it's this something that recurs throughout, like, Philip K. Dick's work, is this idea of a heavily capitalized future. And in some ways, it's like a companion piece to Alien, which is Ridley Scott's also sort of heavily commercialized future. But this idea where even people's DNA and human bodies have become things that are bought and sold and sort of cloned and treated as as extensions and commodities and stuff. Let's Let's actually, let's jump into this while you're talking about what it means to be human. One of the big debates around Blade Runner is the question of whether or not Deckard is actually a human being. I really, I, I, I think he definitely is. Yeah, there's, the, the, I mean, I know, I know, I've heard this, I've heard this has been said before that um, De- Deckard has uh, all of these. Um, what is it? He has these photos. Yeah. He has, he has this dream. About a unicorn. About a unicorn. Which Gaff somehow knows about. Because um, Gaff at the end leaves a little uh, unicorn origami uh, yeah. there. And even the bit where, where at the end where Gaff greets him, he says, you've done a man's work, boy. Uh, which employ- implies that, you know, he's almost surprised to think of Deckard as a, as a human being. She asks him as well if he's been tested. Yeah, as if in, he's as, taken. In, as in, <laughs> yeah. not if he's been tested for STDs. Yeah. Um, um, just if he's been tested <laughs> to see is he a replicant or not yeah but um, here's the uh, and it's it's something that's really big so like Ridley Scott is very much very strongly of the opinion that he, he is a replicant and he sort of in certain scenes in the, the version that we just watched he tinted his eyes red to give that hint Harrison Ford very famously said no I did not play a robot and if I if I if I had played a robot I would have played it differently and the direct and the writer um, Hampton um, Hampton Francher Basically came down in the middle and said, hey, maybe he is, maybe he is, and I wrote it to be ambiguous. Well, do um, androids dream of electric sheep? Is how how much is that like the movie? As it and and how much is is uh, is the movie different? Well, I mean the it's very close in terms of in terms of aesthetic and tone. So, for example, Philip K. Dick actually visited the set and watched some of the dailies while they were producing it, and said it was like they'd looked inside his head. Right. Uh, to basically to produce the way the film looks and feels. But in terms of the actual storyline, in terms of Decker himself, the character is rather different. So, for example, in the book, his or in the, in the story, his uh, awakening uh, to what he's doing or the idea that he's questioning what he's doing 
uh, comes as part of the story rather than I think in Blade Runner it's implied to have begun when he stopped running blades. Um, and I think that, what was it? It was... Um, Is that the verb? I think that's how you turn it into a verb. Running blades or blade running. Okay. Uh, tell 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 us what get, you get think. onto Twitter. Yeah. yeah, you you don't have you don't have to get down off of it, Darren. You can <laughs> stick to your guns. Well, you know that we know where the term came from. The term actually doesn't appear in the original short story. Do androids dream of electric sheep? It, it came from um, basically Ridley Scott sat down with the director Hampton Francher and as the writer Hampton Francher and said, "I need you to come up with something to call him because we can't just call him a detective. That's kind of tired and worn out." And so Francher went away, and then he came back. <laughs> and he said, he said to, to, to Ridley Scott, I have it, right? But I'm not going to tell you what it is, because if I tell you what it is, it doesn't sound as cool as it looks when you write it down. So he wrote down a piece of paper, and Ridley Scott's like, yep, yeah, that actually reads much better than it sounds when you say it out loud. Like, he's a Blade Runner. Sounds a lot less cool than just seeing the words Blade Runner written on the, uh, written on the board. So he's like, okay, so Francher, that, that's fantastic. You came up with that, right? That was your idea. And Francher goes, ah, it was my idea to use it in this case, yes. Apparently the idea came from, um, you know, William S. Burroughs, obviously. Yes. He wrote a screenplay based on, and I believe it was about the smuggling of medical supplies from Mexico, uh, cheap medical supplies from Mexico into the United States. Okay. And it was called Blade Runner, a movie, because it was about smuggling scalpels, basically. Okay. Although, I think Scalpel Smuggler is a lot more, is a lot catchier than Blade Runner, no? Uh, no. No, not at all. Who would have thought that I couldn't out with the great William S. Burroughs when it came to catchy names? But he sold it the name for a nominal fee because he was a big fan of Philip K. Dick. But, so I... With regards to whether or not Deckard is a human or a replicant, I don't think it matters. Um, I don't think it it matters physically. I think if he's a replicant, he's a really bad replicant <laughs> as well. And also, I think he's not a very good Blade Runner. No, well, no, I, he's I, a terrible Blade Runner. Yeah, and, and like, like he's 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 drunk most of the time. He is um, like at one point when he's on gets the clock, beaten up, yeah. like um, repeatedly. Yeah, and fires through crowds. Yeah, not. Uh, like he misses as well, yeah. like a number of times. So there's any chance he could have hit. He's Savannah. definitely not a a, 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 <laughs> a exemplar. Yeah. Have you ever seen RoboCop? <laughs> Just miss, in case. miss somebody. Yeah. Oh, um, well, the the the. <laughs> come quietly, or there will be trouble. The the <laughs> the RoboCop RoboCop makes its 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 mandate at two fifty appearance. Yeah. Even, even though this movie doesn't 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 feature any. Uh, robots. robots. Um, there, <laughs> there'll be a lot of references to Robocop. Uh, I feel that's apt. But yeah, no. Let's let's talk about how terrible a Blade Runner Deckard is, right? Because at the start of the movie, Deckard I, is. I, I don't want to be too hard on Deckard because he does he does do something that I really appreciate very early <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, this is the moment where Andrew's yeah. not on Deckard's side. I think it's the first scene he's in. It's his establishing character. He moment. goes and buys um, noodles. Noodles. Now he yeah. wants four noodles. Which are two twos. What what does it mean to order four noodles anyway? I think it means he just really wants a lot of noodles. Is he is he getting four of something and the noodles? Or is he getting four? And he gets two something instead. I feel like he's maybe getting like two shots of 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 some (laughs) kind of tequila. Because I can't imagine that he's not drinking. But it really it really satisfied me when I see in the next shot because Basically, somebody uh, comes up behind him and... Gaff. Uh, Gaff. The wonderful J- Edward James Almos. 
comes 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 and um, takes uh, takes him away because he needs to see the chief. Briant, yeah, yeah. Um, and hey, I'm thinking, oh no, he's gonna he's gonna just <laughs> dump that, that. Yeah, he's gonna throw away that noodles or like they're 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 gonna. They're, it's just gonna be wasted in the restaurant. But no, the next season. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the next <laughs> the very next scene. The very next scene, we we see Deckard in the cop uh, car this, with Gaff. Yeah, this uh, Gaff is smart enough to know that Deckard's probably in no state to drive. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Deckard is eating his noodles while in the car. And that was the moment that won Andrew over. Yeah, it's like it's a real problem with me when I when I see or feel uh, food waste in a movie. I, I love I love the fact that the the shot of of Deckard eating those noodles actually means more to you than the fact that they probably had to do it countless times and Harrison Ford threw away entire mountains of noodles. No, no, no! I don't. I don't Harrison Ford ate every noodle on that set. Damn it! Absolutely. I mean, he's hungry from all that. Uh, all that drinking. Yeah. Primarily, but yeah, Deckard is actually like Deckard's hunted down by Briant. Like it's like we have a job. The guy who was in charge, who is uh, Hamilton or Harrison, I think it is. Um, basically, his his predecessor, the the Blade Runner, who was interview was introduced, um, interviewing Leon, and who is, for example, uh, he wasn't the Blade Runner. Holden, yes, Holden. He was. Well, he's he's the one who. Um, so basically, Briant Briant explains that when the six replicants made it to Earth, uh, they made an attack on the Terminal Corporation that killed two of them. Leon, they then basically dispatched the Blade Runner to interview all the new recruits at Tyrrell, which is Holden, which is the guy who was interviewing Leon at the start. He was basically looking oh. to see if they tried to infiltrate the, the company to get closer to I Tyrell. thought he was just a guy working for Tiro. <laughs> no, no, it was actually a conscious attempt to, to weed them out. Um, and that's why he no, said... No, no, I, 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 know, I know that, but I, I, I thought it was a Tyrell employee no, who, who, was, who was being asked to do that. That's why, that's why, why Briant was like, yeah, if he's, he's still breathing. Oh. You just thought he was a really crap detective. He's, like, you he's should get Holden to do it. No, Holden's... The, the guy who was, who was shot twice yes it's definitely not still breathing okay well, i feel like these are two different people i don't know that's the impression i got was that that's that's what's that's what brian was talking about because that's why is it like a thing where there's only one working blade runner at a moment at a given moment so it's like harrison ford retired so deckard retired it's like the phantom oh yeah there can there can be only one or highlander uh well we're talking about other 80s highlander there's lots of highlanders <laughs> but there, there can eventually only be one, one. Yeah, there's loads at a time. <laughs> yes, at any given moment. Yeah. But like there's a sense that um that basically Briant had to hunt down Deckard. He's like, okay, Holden got shot repeatedly. This is gonna be a tough assignment. Who do we need? Who's the only person we can count on? Let's get the guy who's never without a shot glass in his hand. Yeah, I don't I don't get it. There there's no point really where 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 it's made out that uh um, Deckard is good at what he does. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. This sort of maybe plies into the idea that he's he's a robot. Because if you think about it, if, if Blade Runners are robots that are being used... Or replicants that are being used definitely to hunt... Definitely not robots. Yeah, definitely not robots. If they're replicants that are being used to hunt replicants, which is an interesting thematic point because it buys into the idea of how we reinforce prejudice would they, and how would we... Would they not make... Uh, sorry. Well, I was going to say, well, in, in that case, then, they only live four years, right? So they have a built-in expiry date, right? So if that happens, then if Holden got shot... That would mean that there would actually be only one other Blade Runner who they could go to to hire. So it's not as if Briant said, look, Deckard is, is our man because he's the best man for the job. 
no, he's he's our man because he's still got maybe three months left of being a robot before he breaks down completely. Not a robot. Not a robot, a replicant. Because it is suggested uh, that, like, why, Gaff... Why do you think there's only one? Well, because it, by that logic, then, why wouldn't, like... I feel, I, I, feel, I feel like Briant would assign any other Blade Runner to work the case if if Deckard... Like, if, if, if there were any other Blade Runner except Deckard, I imagine they would be working the case. I don't imagine Deckard was the first choice looking at looking at his performance here. Yeah. And looking at the way that Briant sort of treats him. Because Briant makes a point later in the film to come down and to sort of to tell him to, to get on his, you know... Briant Bri- says how how much of a um, killer um, Deckard is. Yeah, but I think like he he so nearly just got like choked to death repeatedly. Yeah, on a number of occasions. But yeah, Briant is talking about how deadly he is, <laughs> how um, awesome he is. Well, here's the thing: there's the implication that. That, like, Deckard maybe was really good at one stage, but has been worn down by what he does. That he, he really It really hates. seems to pain him, killing these... Um... The replicants. Well, here's, here's the thing. He only ever kills two... The two replicants he kills over the course of the film are women. Which I think is a very conscious choice. Yeah. Yeah, so he doesn't kill Leon. Leon is killed by Rachel, and, and Batty expo- expires naturally. So the only women he actually... The only replicants he actually shoots and kills are two unarmed women. Do you think that's what upsets him? No, I don't think that's what exp- what upsets him, but I think that emphasizes what he's doing. I think that emphasizes the idea that he what he's doing is not heroic or necessary or even something that's that's valorous. Like I think the idea of of the way that Blade Runner codes the killing of replicants, which is the shooting of unarmed women by a badged officer who you know doesn't even have to fill out paperwork afterwards, suggests it's a very dehumanizing job. It's not he combat, goes, yeah, it's not he warfare. Goes, he goes straight from, from from killing the first replicant. To flashing his badge and going and get noodles again. Yeah. And whiskey. Noodles and whiskey. And Gaff interrupts him again. Yeah. I, I like the idea that Gaff, like, whenever Gaff is dispatched to find Deckard, his first check is, is there a place that sells whiskey and noodles? Yeah. That is probably where Deckard will be. There, There's payphones uh, in, in, in this version <laughs> of 2019. And 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 if you want to reach somebody in Los Angeles, you just go looking for them, basically. Yeah. There's, like, there's a scene where, like, after... You have to be a detective. To find somebody. Yeah. These are the things. Because it is, like, they have video phones, for example. It's not just pay phones, it's video pay phones. Yeah. But they don't have mobile communication. They don't even have pagers. No. Or maybe Deckard. Maybe they have pagers, but Deckard just doesn't use them. Yeah, yeah, because Deckard's trying to be on um, unsociable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he he wants to be off off the grid. But yeah, all he does is drink, and I mean, even later. So even when he, when he tracks down that first replicant, who's who's the dancer, the assassin model, um, he goes and he asks about her snake, and he asks the operator of the club for for about the snake, and he says, "Are your licenses in order?" And your man's response is to say, "Look, drinks are on us for the night." To which Deckard, despite the fact he's on duty. Is you know we see lots of shots of him uh, taking down these weird martini glasses full of whiskey. Yeah, and then drunk dialing Rachel. Um, in case you don't get how, prof- how pathetic and how broken he is, he sort of he rings her. He's like, "Hey, I'm in a really trashy club where the owner's given me an open bar because his license aren't in order. You should come down. It'll be great. You'll love it." And she's like, oh, "That's not really my sort of scene. He's like, "We can go anywhere, anywhere. Love me." Yeah, yeah. A little desperate. He's a, a wee bit. And, um, 
the scene the scene in the changing room i was thinking it's an 80s movie and they seem to like not be showing her boobies what's <laughs> what's going on here well i think and and then and then a few seconds later it's like bam it's like oh okay boobies great well, I also think, to be fair, that's kind of a point of, of the scene where he's like, um, where he's talking about, like, you'd be surprised at the lengths at which people would go, a man would go to get an eyeful. And then there's just this little moment of sort of honesty where she breaks character and she's like, no, I wouldn't. And there's a sense that maybe herself and Pris, who are the female replicants, have been sort of subjected to that more than most. Has she, though? I know that Pris was some kind of um, like a pleasure, pleasure bot. bot. Which is a really creepy phrase, by the way, just to be clear. Oh, s- sorry. We keep we keep calling them robots. Yes. Oh, yeah, she was a pleasure model. Yes. Um, which somehow makes it even more seedy. But the... Yeah, the, so the argument is... But I think that she's an assassin model who was intended to for infiltration and assassination, is how Briant describes her. Okay. So and the fact that she's had to go under, she's had to sort of disguise herself as a, as an exotic dancer, I think perhaps suggests that maybe she is used to that or she's familiar with that. I mean, to be fair, even say Batty and Leon have also traded their flesh, albeit in less you know, sexual ways. Yeah, um, Leon is he, Leon seems like a a school bunny. I I, yes. I I I I I don't guess how it was decided. That they would make organic, um, basically human beings, to do work for us. Would would like don't wouldn't wouldn't they suffer from the limitations of being flesh and bone? Well, I mean they're they're like, stronger. Like they're very clearly. Oh, stronger. they are. Yeah. yeah, but like they they um, they get cuts and scrapes and bruises and <laughs> periods and. So uh, Andrew's Andrew's argument is that you should just build RoboCop. Is, is exactly. I, see, I see where this is where this yeah, argument is yeah. going. Yeah, you, sh- you should at least make them cyborgs. Yes, which would be much cooler. It does. It does raise the sen- raise the question of sort of as this culture was developing, like why would you make them look particularly human? Like why would you make them so they could pass as human if you knew this was going to be a problem? Like, yeah, just make them shiny gunmetal, um, <laughs> sleek, um, sleek Robocop. Um, come quietly or there will be trouble. Yeah, it's like no no 20 to 100 question exam required. <laughs> to, to validate, like, to know whether or not it's There like, he is. That's an ED 209. <laughs> you can tell because it's stop motion claymation juxtaposed against live action footage. Yeah. Um, we may need to talk about Robocop in more depth just to get this out of your system. But I mean, I, oh, I just before before we get off Robocop, there's a moment where Rucker Hauer puts his his fist, fist through, the through the wall, just like in Robocop. You do realize that this predates Robocop, right? It does. It does. Okay, just so we're clear, uh, it's also a moment that Frank Miller borrowed for the Dark Knight Returns and stuff like that because everything is influenced by Blade Runner. But we'll talk about that in a moment. What I was going to say was, in terms of this idea, there is this idea, though, that, like, it doesn't matter whether Deckard is actually literally a replicant himself, because in a way, he's as much a robot as anybody else. Like, he's, there's this theme that recurs throughout Philip K. Dick's work, which is, like, if you are somebody or if you are something that exists for nothing beyond the purpose for which you've been designed, are you a robot? And the fact that, like, say, Batty and his, his robots rebel against that suggests that they are more than, or his replicants, his fellow replicants rebel against that, suggests that they are more than just replicants. Whereas the fact that Deckard doesn't wrestle against his job and doesn't, like, resist what he's doing 
Does that mean well, he's more I, robotic I think, than they are? I think are? he finds his work uh, difficult and problematic. Oh, he does, and, yeah. Yeah, and I think... The implication is that he drinks so escape. much. Yeah. But he doesn't. But he can't bring himself to. Is it... Yeah, okay. So is 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 that a possible theme of this movie, then? Uh, yeah. That, it, that, it, that it's about the, the kind of wish that people have to rebel... Um, or to be more than they are, or to, to yeah, to, to change and evolve and grow. I think as well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a definite sense of that like Deckard, whether or not he's he's a replicant in terms of biology, like he's a tool for purpose. He's employed by Briant and Gaff. Like he's he follows their behest, he follows their orders, and he kills at their order. Uh, whereas on the other hand, like Batty stopped killing. Batty was a soldier, and he gave that up in order to try and find a way that he could live. And in particular. He seems very interested in the idea that Pris should live. Like, he doesn't seem that shook up when he realises he's going to die. He's shook up when he realises that Pris is dead. And I think that there's this sense that Batty and the other replicants around them, because they have empathy for one another, because they care for one another, because they love one another, because they resist the roles that they've been cast to play, they are perhaps more human than Deckard is. I find it strange that the whole reason they have for coming back to Earth yeah. and for for trying to get into the Tyrrell Corporation, uh, which causes two of them to be killed straight away, <laughs> yes. um, is that they want to live longer. Um, Irony, it, thy name is Robots. Yeah. Replicant. <laughs> We, we we there's probably something we can do just to replace the, the, the word <laughs> in, robot in the yeah. in the podcast. It feels like like it feels like they are robots. It, it's it's strange that they're not. Yes, in terms of storytelling, they are definitely robots. In in terms of, but I think the people listening to the podcast will accept that. People on the internet will never get hung up about like <laughs> small errors, like randomly saying the wrong or word. Yeah, yeah. Or if, if 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 you were to call something a zombie. Yeah, when it's when, not actually a zombie. Yeah. What was the big art? Oh, 28 Days 28 Later. 28 Days Later, yeah. yeah 28, apparently. whether they're, they're actually zombies. zombies. Yes. Like, they're zombies. They're, Come on. they're zombies for all intents and purposes. Like the replicants are robots for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Sorry, we won't get into a discussion of zombies. Can we talk a bit about Rutger Hauer? Oh, Rutger Hauer is amazing. Yeah, he's really, really good. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I know, I, I know. You asked me what, what do I think this movie uh, is <laughs> about, and the answer I, is Rutger Hauer. Yeah, no, I, I, I found it difficult to kind of latch on to anything very uh, thematic. But, uh, but I, 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 I thought Rutger Hauer was amazing. What else is he in? Well, he's been in lots of stuff. Like he, he worked with. Has Paul... he been in Bergman movies? Uh, I don't know if he's been in Bergman movies, but he's been. He worked with Paul Verhoeven. Okay. was his sort of his, his, his gateway to Stardom. Which, which is about to say, this might explain why he's such a good fit for you, Andrew. Um, he's also, so for example, he Blade Runner is the movie that he is most proud of in terms of his Where work. Where is he from? He's Dutch. Um, and he's also, he's a poet and a writer as well in his spare time as if he wasn't awesome enough. Um, and he's also, he did like The Hitcher, for example. And you've probably seen him pop up recently in stuff like, say, the Sin City movies or stuff like he was in Batman Begins, for example. Um, he was the guy who tried to uh, buy Bruce Wayne's company. So here he is, for example. He was talking about how he basically, he, he was really invested in the character and he was really invested in it as a storyteller. And he, was, he felt he had some very strong opinions about how the character should go and stuff like that. So here, for example, is when he's talking about the ending. Uh, when, he, when he looks at a script, he says... 
You know, I think a lot of scripts are overwritten, Howard says. Even the best actor cannot sell me with language that is overwritten. I'm allergic to that. So I look at the script, I look at my part, and I shave everything that I feel I don't need. <laughs> which, which, if you're a writer, probably makes you feel very comfortable having casting Rutger Hauer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it, no, it doesn't sound very respectful <laughs> of writers, does it? No. Wow. Everything is overwritten. I can carry this. I can do this without any of your dialogue or exposition. But apparently when it came to the ending, he, his big speech um, was, was basically... One of the things, one of the big things I fought for was the ending. I wanted the last scenes with Deckard and Batty to be a dance and a game. The big macho fight I don't care for. That doesn't really tell a story. We've seen all these fights so many times. We know what's going to happen. If a battery dies, it dies pretty quickly. You don't have time to sing a song about how wonderful life is. If you have to start doing a monologue about the things you miss, it's going to hold up the ending and it's going to be untrue. So Ridley in general sort of went with it um, and apparently he revised his final monologue the iconic sort of tears and rain monologue where he's talking about seeing a tap ship on fire off the Tannhauser gate about seeing sea beams in space glistening on a, off Orion's belt um, he ad-libbed the line t- like tears and rain and he, he cut the speech significantly uh, which is, is very much one of his touches he also um, insisted that when they were filming the scene Roy Batty would be carrying a white dove that he would release as he died, representing his soul finally being free. Which is why, for example, it's very hard to reconcile. Why does Roy Batty have a white dove in a world where there are no other animals? Uh, But apparently he had a big argument with Ridley Scott to the point where Ridley Scott finally said, okay, fine, you can do it. It's a replicant too, Derek. Yeah, (laughs) he's been carrying it around. It's probably like... The, the 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 thing that would make the most sense for that dove because you 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 do ask what where did that dove come yeah. from? The thing that would make the most sense is is that that dove was created by what's his name? Um, Sebastian J F Sebastian J F Sebastian. It's one of his toys. It's, yeah, it's the only it's, one of his toys that isn't freakishly monstrous. Yeah, there, there's <laughs> there's a menagerie of horrors in J F Sebastian. <laughs> And, and the, the unicorn, which and Andrew there's spotted. A, there's a unicorn as Which well, is yeah. another suggestion that Deckard might be a replicant. Uh, the idea that the unicorn in his dreams was implanted there, like a memory. Or... I just have two questions about J.F.'s menagerie. Okay, so, one. The f- first one is, are these his friends? And, and yes, secondly, because he's... did he make them? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I make my own friends, uh, which is a great line. The amount of times he says... Um, <laughs> I I made my friends. These are my friends. I made them. I made them. Well, I mean, it's funny because we were talking about this earlier in the film about how... Remember when we were discussing Cologlan? Yes, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah, and you... Yeah, the, the, this this movie, uh, Cologlan was much better in, the, in respect of... Uh, this very specific thing that Andrew is about to mention. Yeah, that, that in Cologlan... <laughs> As opposed to Blade, to Blade Runner, they would regularly repeat the names of characters. In Blade Runner, you're often lucky if you catch a character's name yeah. one time. There are some characters in this movie who are never named. Yeah, like I'm not entirely sure who what James Hong's character is. I know that Edward James almost plays Gaff because like, I've seen him a couple of times and I'm like, that's an interesting character. Yeah. But uh, a lot of the characters are not necessarily names aren't repeated and can be difficult no. to follow. No, I, I don't know what the name of the the lady with the snake 
who who yes. gets shot running away, running yeah. through all those glass windows. Yes. Don't know what her name was. Yes. I managed to write down Pris. We <laughs> we, we we didn't uh, for a large part of the movie. I didn't know whether it was Decker, Deckers, or Deckard. There was um, a point at which we had a big argument about whether or not they were referring to Leon and Kowalski. Which one they were referring to. Oh yeah, to. yeah. So so at one point he's called Kowalski because he's he's trying he's, to, to... To sneak pre- into the yeah. Terrell Corporation. Yeah. And 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 I think it, it, it also probably feeds into our confusion about whether there's one... Whether there's one person... One blade called, runner. Um, yeah. Was it Harrison Holden, and another person called Holden? Yeah, I oh. feel like there might be two people. There might be one person. This this movie isn't great on those sorts of uh, uh, those details. sorts of points. But I mean, and I, and it is. It is very hard to follow. Well, I mean, you know, this is this is one of the issues when it was screened. You, Blade Runner had a very traumatic production and post production life, as you probably know. Um, so it was screened for audiences, for test audiences in, I believe, Colorado and Dallas. Yeah. And the feedback was very much similar to what you said there, which was, what the hell's going on? Who are these people? What are they talking about? And the studio went into a panic. And so the studio responded basically by... Ins- oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, 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 you showed me some of this. Go on. The, the, the studio responded in several ways. The first thing that they responded by doing was that they they insisted that they offer voiceover monologue. So, for example, um, Harrison Ford would record special monologue that would, um, that would explain in great detail kind of what a Blade Runner is, how a Blade Runner works, why he was doing exactly what he was doing, rather than sort of letting the world speak for itself. Um, and then, basically, that played over the scene. So, yeah, so, for example, here's Harrison Ford talking about the, um, the, the voiceover. What I remember more than anything else when I see Blade Runner is not the 50 nights of shooting in the rain, but the voiceover. I was still obliged to work for those clowns that came in writing one bad voiceover after another. Um, And then, for example, when we started shooting, it had been tacitly agreed that the version of the film we had agreed upon was the version without voiceover narration. It was a nightmare. I thought that the film had worked without the narration, but now I was stuck recreating that narration. And I was obliged to do voiceovers for people that did not represent the director's interests. And it is, and it's it's incredibly... When I was watching this as a child, the voiceovers completely killed the mood, but they did help me understand what was going on a bit better, I have to admit. As as terrible as those voiceovers were. I feel like there, there, there must be some... Um, Happy middle. Yeah. I, I mean, surely. I, I, I saw... Um, I think you showed me part part of the cut with the voiceover in it, and yeah. I did agree that 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 <laughs> the voiceover that was, it was terrible. weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it. Um, <laughs> it On the other hand, it, it, the movie does throw you in the deep end. Yeah, and, and I, like like back to their whole reason for coming to Earth was yeah was 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 so that they didn't have to die. Yes. And they then all they get off. killed. Yeah, but they all... It would have been fine. Had <laughs> they just stayed there and accepted their fate. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the this is the, the thing, though. I mean, I mean, they would have died eventually. Yeah. Well, I mean, Batty dies of natural causes. Because yeah. he's, he's the eldest of the bunch. But I think there's, there's an argument to be made about whether or not, like, dying on your own terms is somehow better than, than like, expiring naturally, biologically. You know, there's, a, there's an argument to be made that, like choosing to resist their fate even if they're doomed to fail in that pursuit and Tyrrell makes it clear that there is absolutely no way 
that they can succeed in in rejecting their faith. But I think the act of very the very act of fighting and resisting it and trying to break that makes them human. No, I <laughs> I think I think Roy dies the way he was he was always going to die and has a much better death than the other three. But he has a much better death as than a the other five the, as the as a result of the journey he's been on though. And it's important to remember that like he he journeys, he visits Tyrrell and he kills Tyrrell. Like he gets to meet his creator and he gets to kill him. It's, which is which is it's basically a fantastically creepy scene. It's a fantastically wonderfully intense like, and creepy scene. You 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 beautiful beautiful little child. <laughs> come here come and let here. me hold you. Yeah. Come here and let me hold you. And then slowly crack your skull and gouge your eyes. And then, yeah. Roy Roy is like let me kiss you now, Daddy. Yeah, and, and, and they kiss and on they, the lips, and they kiss on the lips, and then he crushes his face and, and sticks his fingers in his eyes. It's very slow it, as well. Like it it's... reminded me of of the scene in Indiana Jones where the Nazis <laughs> face uh, melts. Face melts. Yeah. Well, the, the best part that the, or the creepiest part in that scene isn't even that bit. It's the bit after he's done. That was when he <laughs> he, he, he realizes that J.F. Sebastian is still in the room and <laughs> proceeds to with his hands covered in blood and not at all running proceeds to walk slowly over and say I'm sorry come here <laughs> come JF, here JF yeah and JF, JF like starts backing away and, <laughs> and Batty doesn't like accelerate her run he's just like come here J, J, so I suppose any, anyone anyone listening to this part um, probably has, has, <laughs> has seen, has the, seen the movie and yeah. that but just to to, to, to to remind you J JF is one of the um, he's the genetic, genetic engineers, genetic designers. Um, there's who a bit of works him. for Tyrrell. Yeah, there's a bit of him in Pris and Batty. Apparently, he works for Tyrrell, so he's a pretty big deal. Yet he lives <laughs> in a complete, in absolute heat. squalor. Yes. Yeah. Well, what's going on? And and presumably as well. Um, well, I mean, like even even Briant, who's like a chief of police or whatever, or extremely high up, he still lives in absolute squalor. The only person who lives anywhere nice is Tyrrell. who lives the, at the top of like this Aztec pyramid he's built. Yeah, the Deckard looks like he's some kind of um, I don't know. Uh, I guess not a hoarder, but his 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 digs aren't great. No, and they're absolutely cluttered. And one of the things I do like about... I love... Is there sunshine in this movie? No, there isn't. There There's... is a bit at the end from that uh, from taken the... out of The Shining. <laughs> yeah, the theatrical... One of the one of the suggestions made off the back of this these terrible screenings in Colorado and Dallas was the film needed a happier ending. And so rather than shoot new material or go and shoot externals, exteriors, despite the fact that the only green to appear in the film were the bonsai tree on Tyrrell's sort of workspace... There's a sequence in which Deckard and Rachel drive off into the country together. They don't say anything. They just glance at each other and there are trees out the window. But there are these establishing shots of hills and mountains and forests that were apparently lifted from unused footage for The Shining. Yeah. Uh, at one point when he's in Tyrrell's um, office, he says, it's too bright in here. And yeah. it's not. It's very dark. Um, <laughs> they make it even darker. By lowering the shades. I mean, here's... The argument about the rain is wonderfully atmospheric, but apparently, according to Ridley Scott, um, he was saying that apparently the reason that it rains all the time is because it was shot on the Warner Studios backlot. And having the rain disguised the fact that the set was only so deep and was only so wide. And it helped disguise the fact that, say, that the, you know, the, the walls of the map, the walls were map paintings. 
Right. So that's part of the reason why it rains so heavily so often. Okay. Why it's just a constant state I mean, of rain. It's people say um, that this uh, uh, that this movie looks really well. It, it looks terrible. It looks brilliant. I, I mean, it it looks brilliant, yes, but I would hate to be in, to in live the in world this of world. this movie. It is. It's one of those. I think though, it's one of those massively influential sort of science fiction futures. Like I think that whatever about how the film was rejected by audiences on its initial release and rejected by critics, I think it's a film that has a massive footprint. Like I think it's a film that left a very clear mark on popular culture. Like you can't look at a future now except see bits of Blade Runner in it. California in the 24th century in Star Trek always looks so nice. <laughs> in particular compared to this, yes. This yeah. is a nice contrast. It's always a utopia. Well, I mean, let's talk about the production design for a bit, because it's, it's one of those futures. Remember back in the 80s when everybody was always all afraid of the Japanese? Oh, um... Like Die Hard is probably the best example. Right. Like stuff like Die Hard, stuff like... Philip K. Dick also wrote, say, The Man in the High Castle which is about an alternate world where Japan won the Second World War. But even stuff like, say, Rising Sun, there are shades of it in Black Rain. But there was in the 80s, there was this anxiety about Japan replacing America as a global power through its sort of its business and technology and stuff like that. Um, so Nakatomi Plaza is probably the best example, the most common example. But like in Blade Runner, there's this idea that the, Eastern, or the Western coast of the United States has been sort of colonized. It's sort of been, it's adapted this sort of weird monoculture, this weird Japanese culture to it. Um, so, for example, you have the geisha girl uh, selling the pill in in one of those big screens. You have the fact that everybody's eating noodles. From? I just imagine that. that sorry, I, I may be it may be a stereotype, and I apologize. But okay, the Japanese model selling the the pill, which is one of the most recognizable images of Blade Runner, the noodle bar, um, stuff like Edward James Almos's gaff, who speaks city speak, which city speak, which the actor himself invented with a bunch of linguists at Berkeley, I think it was. Okay, but he basically cobbled it together from Mexican. Uh, Japanese and French um, and that's why he has a long moustache um, and that's why he has a long moustache um, sort of he, he styled that on like a, a French uh, Indo-Chinese um, sort of design okay it's kind of like Creole or yeah yeah something like that but I mean there is this sense that like Blade Runner presents a future where where Japan has or where Asia at least has exerted a very heavy influence on the west coast of America Okay. Which which I which was a recurring fascination for sort of writers and and film and television in the eighties I think yeah no you don't yeah you don't think yeah I I suppose I suppose when we watch it these days when we think of 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 the world being being taken over by um by Asia we think of China yeah mostly yeah um yeah but um I suppose I suppose back in what was it nineteen eighty yeah at this age would have been eighty two. 82. So this would have been around the time that, yeah, all the tech giants were coming in. I mean, like, if you look at, say, the... It's fascinating to look at the 80s and 90s of the cultural moment in America when the Cold War was cooling. And because, like, America had this relationship with Japan where Actually, they... Actually, hold on. Uh, Robocop 3 <laughs> also, also has that <laughs> Japanese... Um... Anxiety. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I knew there was a way that we were going to tie this back. <laughs> finally, uh, finally, you've got my interest. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, like, this idea of, say, um, as the Cold War was cooling, because the US had... Uh, obviously, after the Second World War, it invested massive amounts of aid in it and it had, had uh, allowed Horito... Uh, to remain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it also, during the Cold War, relied on Japan as a sphere, as a as an influencer in that part of the world. But when it was becoming clear the Cold War was winding down, it was going to come to an end. There was this question of would Japan emerge as a power to challenge the U.S. and it sort of surpassed it in terms of technological development, in terms of industry. 
And that was really a source of, of concern for Americans. Like in the early 90s, the big argument was that the threat to the United States in terms of espionage was not uh, the former Soviet Union or any of the former republics or even China. The argument was Japanese, the Japanese government using Japanese companies as fronts to, uh, to, to smuggle information out of the country. It's crazy to go back and to read these reports that were published and to look at, say, stuff like even the X-Files did one where um, the X-Files did a, a big two-parter where it turned out the Japanese were secretly stealing alien DNA. And you're looking at that from the perspective of the 21st century and you're wondering... The Japanese uh, companies um, taking over um, uh, traditional alien industries. <laughs> yeah, it's a big threat that we don't, we don't talk about nearly enough. But it is, it, it's just sort of one of those, it's those weird cultural moments that, you know, when, when people are afraid of something and it turns out to be so completely misguided or misfounded that it, it, it's weird when you go back and you watch that. Like you can understand, for example, anxieties about, say, communism. That enhancement scene. Oh, the, the wonderful <laughs> thing where... He's looking at a photo. Yes, that was taken by, by Leon. Way, it's like a... It's a 2D, it's a, a Polaroid. A, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a printed photo and it looks really quaint. Yeah. Um, but how was anyone to know that like the idea of having like a, a piece of, uh, yeah. Would, would put it, put... He puts it into a scanner on top of a, a TV monitor. Yeah. And he basically begins what, what CSI has, has sort of turned into like this iconic sequence. Enhance, <laughs> enhance 34 through 32. Yeah. Track right. Enhance 34 through 32. It's very he, frustrating because he keeps going past what, what <laughs> he's just like, oh, go, 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 stop, stop, go back. Backtrack, go back. backtrack, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Zoom he, out, zoom in. If he just did it by okay. hand, it yeah, would probably yeah, be a yeah. lot quicker. He's too drunk, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's like, um, he, yeah, he could, um, he could just do this himself. It would probably take two seconds, but he's just in such a stupor. I do love that futuristic whiskey bottle he has because he has that, you know, the black and gold label whiskey. What's it? What's it? You probably know the brand. You name? love the aesthetics of drunk. I, I do. As somebody yeah. who doesn't drink, I find it fascinating. But I love that, like in the future, that you can tell the whiskey bottle's futuristic because it's shaped exactly like a modern whiskey bottle, except there's curves at the bottom. Oh yeah. It's like that was the big breakthrough we had in 2018. Yeah, I, I, I want, I want um, yeah, um, there's probably some people are going to come out with, with a um, Blade Runner whiskey. Yeah. No, I think it's a recognisable brand, though. I think it, I'm fairly sure it is. It's, um, I think it might be, yeah. And one, is there a Johnny Walker Red Label there, at some point okay. in the movie, I think? There is, and there's also, like, there's Coca-Cola and Heineken and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Um, the film had, did a lot of product placement, but I think it did it very well, because I always wondered about product placement, like, if you're being product placed into a dystopia, does that affect you? Like, um, I think I think it's very reassuring to know <laughs> that, like, however bad things get, you can always have still a have that sweet, sweet Coca Cola <laughs> to enjoy. Yeah, and their logo and brand won't have changed significantly. Yeah, um, even the dodgiest noodle bar will still have a neon sign for Heineken in it. Yeah, which is, and it's reassuring also to know that it's not just something that happens in modern James Bond films either. No. This sort of product placement has been with us a while. Yeah, it did. Um... But anyway, so the enhancement scene, which is absolutely ridiculous. So while he's drinking his whiskey and doing his enhancement, he's doing his... Despite the fact he's put in, like, a 2D representation on he paper... He rotates he, in, in, in 3D at one point, He does. He? he navigates into, into one of the connecting rooms... <laughs> 
in the photo and then turns like 90 degrees to see um to see yeah. the, the dancer sort of sitting down he's like oh, wait up there is rio and you're part of me part of you is wondering like how is this qualified police work like how is this something that only deckard could do if they can do this in the future how come Deckard seems to work almost entirely on his own yeah. like the only thing that the other police um officers do uh, officers seem to do is is uh, like find him and <laughs> and and tell him stuff to do. Yeah, like there's uh, a, there's a great scene before. They never really help him. Yeah, there's a great bit where before he confronts Batty and Pris in in sort of uh, Sebastian's apartment, a police car comes up beside him and it's like, okay, buddy, what you doing? Trying to move. He's like, what are you doing? I'm I'm working a case here. What are you doing? Arresting you for being in the zone. And he's like, okay, I'm a Blade Runner. And he's like, okay, have a better day. Carry on. At no point is he like, look, I'm about to face a bunch of dangerous killer robots. Oh yeah, I could yeah. probably use a little backup. Yeah, it seems it seems it seems like um, yeah that 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 um, there's there's several points where he could he probably <laughs> probably would have like, okay, you block all eggs. <laughs> yeah. I'm going in here. Or or not even that. Five people are going in here with yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean these 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 this guy was built to load ammunition and to be a soldier? I'm sure I can take him single-handedly. It see, it seems it, it would seem more likely that 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 he would kind of like stand back and let other people go in. <laughs> yeah. Like James Woods in the specialist. <laughs> Which um... I'm surprised that wasn't a RoboCop reference in some way, shape, or form. Ah, tricked you. You did. Always, um, Andrew. This is what I like about working with you. You always keep me on my toes. But I love James Woods. Too. James Woods is also is it James Woods or James Woods. James Woods. You're right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, he's he's got that Twitter thing going on at the moment. Oh no! Yeah, you don't want to hear this. Don't want to shatter your illusions of James Wood. No, no, I don't. Okay, all right. He's just car- doing it as research for a part. Okay, sure. we'll carry on. He is uh, definitely not trying to expose a dead Twitter user for making a joke about him using cocaine on Twitter. Okay, so <laughs> um, Andrew's illusions L- suitably shattered. Yeah. La seems like one of those bazaars from out of Star Wars or Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yes, it does. And I mean, there's one point where we were talking about this, where he's, before he goes into Sebastian's apartment, because despite designing robots, Sebastian lives in a really crap part of town. Oh, yeah. But there's a point, a point where a bunch of street kids, it looks like, begin, oh, yeah. begin they attacking. They look like Jawas. They look like Jawas. They begin, like, dismantling his cop car, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't hear them speak, but there's an impression that, yeah, that's the sound that they're making. Um... And it is. There's a lot of that through the film. There's a lot of the sense that Los Angeles has become this sort of weird, this weird hellhole. Like everything is constantly smoky. There's fire everywhere. Like even the chimneys seem to fire in the opening scene. There are these two gigantic pyramids that have been oh, built, yeah. which is really strange. It's these two gigantic um, Aztec pyramids, which seem to be something of like a Ridley Scott, um, a Ridley Scott fixation. Because I think he discussed about wanting to include them in like Prometheus and its sequels. So these ideas of like civilization almost regressing to like a, a primitive state or to to sort of like a you know this old old autocratic rule or you know dictatorship or whatever. Yeah. Except this time we build the monuments to corporations as opposed to to people or gods. Yeah, the the yeah it it very much the the headquarters of the Tyrrell Corporation 
looks <laughs> looks like the 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 like an old Aztec pyramid. Yeah, or or like the capital city of one of those um, um, Star Trek civilizations, it really like Cardassia Prime. Yeah, it, it has that sort of look to it, and I think there is a sense of that. Like I think that, interestingly enough, Scott has argued that one of the rumors was that Scott wanted to combine Alien and Blade Runner. So, did you see Prometheus? I have not. Okay, well, Prometheus features, and it's it's a movie that's been out for two years now, so I don't consider this a spoiler. It features Guy Pearce uh, in a role for which he was required to wear a phenomenal amount of old age makeup. And a lot of people were wondering why Ridley Scott would go to the hassle of casting Guy Pearce and putting him in all that old age makeup. And one of the suggestions that was mooted was that what Ridley Scott wanted to do was he wanted to use Guy Pearce in a similar role in his Blade Runner sequel. And so he wanted to combine the two worlds, and so to suggest that the world of Blade Runner is actually the world of Alien. And you can sort of see that in the production design like of it. Like a sort of MCU sort of thing. Uh, yes, like, like a dystopian MCU, uh, where instead of fantasy and hope, there's just depression and, and soul death. But yeah, you can, I think you can see that in the design. Though. The design of, of Blade Runner looks a lot like the design of Alien. It's this grotty used future with all the circuitry exposed, where people are sort of commoditized and kept in boxes and all this sort of stuff. No? You don't, you don't get that? Um, the, <laughs> like this idea of a world where everybody's cramped in, confined, and where you know, sort of the system, you know, these these capitalist companies like Wayland Utani or the Tyrrell Corporation have come to so dominate human life that you know, Deckard's working as a police oh, officer, yeah. but he's cleaning up Tyrrell's mess. Didn't we speak about this before? When we talked about aliens, how yeah. a lot of those eighties movies have this idea of <laughs> of corporations yeah, as taking being... over and it, and it being this kind of like... Uh, dystopian nightmare. Yeah, and this logical conclusion of Reaganism yes. and how it's a little bit like Robocop. Yes, that we talked about that a lot. <laughs> so I think that does fit very much with, with this, Blade Runner. Yeah, it's but... another way in which this movie <laughs> is just like Robocop. <laughs> but I think there is an argument that like Tyrrell is presented you, as... You finally brought it back there. I thank you. <laughs> I set it up and you knocked it down. But there is an argument like Tyrrell is presented as a godlike figure because he's Batty sees him as his maker. It's like he's a hard man to see your maker, you know, for example. Um, and he lives atop a pyramid where he gazes over civilization, which actually looks quite a lot like, say, you know, Ridley Scott's recent work, like uh, Gods and Kings, for example, um, Exodus. It has a similar sort of feel, ironically enough, to Blade Runner. So there's this idea that Ridley like, Scott did that. Yeah. Is that, isn't that supposed to be terrible? It's not great. No, it's not great. Am I thinking of something else? No, you're which, thinking... Which one has Jared Butler? Gods of Egypt, uh, which was directed by the guy who... And this is going to break your heart. Have you seen Dark City? Uh, no. Okay, well, then this won't break your heart. It's directed by the guy who directed Dark City, um, Alexis Price, who also directed terrible films like Knowing. Have you seen Knowing? I have not. Lucky you. I've seen Noah. But not Knowing. No. Knowing is the one where Nicolas Cage discovers the combination of numbers that will decode every horrible event ever. Oh yeah, it's it's fantastically that terrible. terrible. It is terrible, surprisingly, but it's from the same director. No, um, Exodus Gods and Kings is the one about Moses, um, and it's it's like the pyramids in that are very much again they resemble the pyramids in this. But there's this idea of the of like Tyrrell positioning himself as a god. Are we doing that thing again that we did in the, in in the nineties where where we would make the same movie? Twice, and you'd have to think about which, which one was the good one and which yeah, one, one was, was the, the bad, bad one. one. Yeah, we've we've had a couple of those. Like for example, we had the the White House down versus Olympus has fallen. For example, which one was good? I like they, uh, they, it has the problem that the two of them just kind of are terrible. melt into one, and yeah. and 
like they're each as bad as the other because you've no way of really distinguishing between <laughs> them. Yes. And the same thing would say Noah may even add itself to that list as well. Yeah. Well, Noah is no, no, but Noah is part of like the big biblical epic stuff, so it goes with gods and kings because it's a, it's an established director tackling an Old Testament story in a weird way. Yeah, um, I I couldn't tell the difference between that and and Evan Almighty. Well, same, I, th- I think in that case it's very same easy movie. To, I think in that case it's very easy to tell which one is the good movie. <laughs> um, but there is this idea that yeah that that Tyrrell has made himself a god. And that Batty is effectively killing God. So you have this. And it is a recurring fixation for Ridley Scott. Cause Scott no, it was great, by the way, because it had... Um, Ray Winston. Ray Winston. <laughs> like, uh, fight, fight, fighting these... <laughs> fighting what were they Russell. called? Guardians. Yeah. It's like, have it, you slag! <laughs> uh, also, also, Russell Crowe and Ray Winston fighting for the future of civilization in the bottom of an arc. Um, yeah. Like, uh, all of civilization boiled down to this moment. It also features one of uh, one of Anthony Hopkins' best performances in a long time as well, yeah. which is very good. He's in Westworld. He is. Westworld is great, um, and we'll probably talk about Westworld in a moment because I have some stuff I want to talk about with with this and robots. And t- I like your Tyrrell is creepy note. Yeah, with yeah. his big glasses. It's, it, it, it's 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 really good how creepy it's <laughs> like. The, um, it really ma- it makes this an interesting movie. Something I didn't like so much was the the. The relationship between Decker and, 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 Rachel. and, and Rachel. Rachel seems lovely. That's a very Irishism. She um, seems like a lovely girl. <laughs> no, but, like, she like, could do better than that, Decker. Oh, yeah. He's, he, like, like she, she's very... Um, Sub- she's very like proper and at points she's very submissive towards him which is really disconcerting it's it's yeah i found that that quite upsetting like he he says to her he like she what? goes to leave and he yeah. like slams the door on her yeah and like pushes her up against the wall and then like what well, hold t- on tells her what to say well, hold on hold on now there's there, there's a lot of weird choices in that scene. So, yeah, she goes to leave. He blocks the door. He then slams the door shut, pushes her against the wall. And then he moves as if to strangle her. Yeah. And his hands pause. He's like, okay, that would be inappropriate. Uh, which is a really weird moment. It's like it's like Blade Runner is kind of trying to do those. You know those 1940s films with the, the feisty women and the feisty men? And it's like borderline sexual assault. But because feminist, second wave feminism didn't really exist at that point, it wasn't an issue. And it well, feels like they're trying can, to do that. Like looking looking back as um, say from Russia with love. Yes. Um, it will will it will still make people uncomfortable these days. But there's 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 at least the comfort of oh that was back in the sixties and soon Sean Connery will be dead so it's all right. <laughs> uh, but 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 this is in the eighties and Harrison Ford is still alive. Damn it, yeah. he survived a plane crash. Yeah, he doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. But so um, yeah, if 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 it feels weird that like um, like even the dialogue like there's a weird there's a sense that she's she's way, she's like three years old she's like she's because she is the built-in life cycle of a replicant oh yeah so she's like got no experience or no frame of reference for any of this and so he he doesn't he isn't gentle he isn't soothing no. he isn't relaxing he isn't like trying to ease her into it making sure it's she's like, comfortable do this do that yeah he basically treats her sort of like a sex robot because there's a point where he kisses her she's confused and responds and then he looks at her and she goes he goes now kiss me and and she says i don't know how and then he says okay say kiss me 
And then she says, kiss me. And, and it's like, okay, yes, this is a good sex robot. Because it is really uncomfortable. Deckard is, is very... Like, and it's not as if Deckard is like charming in a 1940s Cary Grant sort of way because he's too drunk and disheveled and disorganized and sort of pathetic to really be charming. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, is Deckard a nice person? Person? I don't think he is. I I I don't think I, I don't think there's much to suggest that that Deckard is actually a good guy. No, there's not. Apart from the fact he seems to maybe feel a little guilty about his work. He. Does. But not guilty enough not to do it. He feels upset about killing those women. And he seems quite tired and drunk. And, and I guess, abusive to women. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, like, um, he, he's also very jaded. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think he's a nice person. And that... that sequence did make me deeply uncomfortable and it is like and because rachel is rachel has no idea she's a replicant she's been abused by men she's been lied to she's been manipulated like tyrell shows her off like a trophy tyrell's like i want you to do the test on her oh that's horrible yeah where he humiliates her basically um and she and then he's like at the end he's like you can leave us rachel while the men talk yeah um so we're going to subject you to a test that may suggest you're actually a robot or a replicant apologies um, and you're not going to get to hear the results. We're going to talk. She finds about... out about that as well. Yeah, which is is horrible. Which is and again, it plays into this idea of how how we treat people that we deem to be lesser, and the idea that there is some gender component to it. Because I'm fairly sure that lots of women would recognize that, even without being replicants or robots, they would recognize being talked over or ignored or paraded about or treated in, in that way in a professional environment. Yeah, um, she she comes to his place. At that point, I was wondering, how is it that she's just able to walk around like that? Apparently, she's not. <laughs> she's, she, <laughs> she, was not she was not meant to get out. <laughs> yes. Um, and she, 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 she leaves uh, Tyrrells. Like, she just seems to walk out of there. Like, um, but then from, from that point on, she's on the lamb and she has to be murdered. Um, and Deckard has to murder her retire yeah she has to be retired to use the euphemism of of the times yeah Um, and here's the thing actually and one of the things she's marked as the latest model of of replicant so it takes 100 questions instead of 20 or 30 to catch her out Uh, and she's also Tyrrell has discovered that the way to make robots or replicants more convincing is to give them real people's memories which is what plays into this idea of Deckard's unicorn because it's Deckard knows about um, knows about Rachel being a replicant because he's able to refer to events from her memory and, and events that she never told anybody about because they were taken from Tyrrell's niece. So the suggestion is that, for example, Gaff is able to construct an origami unicorn, which comes from Deckard's dreams, even though Deckard doesn't seem like the kind of guy who go. You guys ever have that dream? You know the one where there's a unicorn and he it's... probably rang Gaff while he was drunk on one of those pay phones. Yeah, and Gaff was He's like... He's like, you know those origami things you do? You <laughs> do me one of a unicorn. Don't ask why. I ever told you I love you, Gaff. You're awesome. Hey, I... come over here, it's fun. <laughs> come hey, down, speak... or... hey, come over here, speak to Gaff. Yeah, or... or... Who's Gaff? Because my friend. Or or we could or we could, we could go where you want to go. It's it's all good. Yeah, yeah. And I do. Gaff is I love. I actually love Gaff as a character 
Because the scene where he's introduced, right, he goes he goes to collect Deckard and he's got a walking stick and he wraps the walking stick on Deckard's back in the most obnoxious manner possible. But also when... That, that's after he's killed uh, one of them, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think he may do it earlier as well. But he also does... When he's talking to Deckard at the very start to get him for, for Briant, he talks to him in Chinese. So the operator of the noodle bar has to translate for him. But later on, he but, seems to speak in English. He does. He speaks perfect English. Yeah. And you just sort of... You get the sense that Gaff is just messing with Deckard's head at this point. Because he's also... He's sitting... He Doesn't he sit in the room as well while Briant is briefing him? Playing... He makes it Lorigami chicken. Or that Lorigami man. While, um, while Deckard is getting this briefing from Briant. Like, I love how... Like, Deckard is not very good at his job. But Briant really doesn't seem to care. It's 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 a curious kind of system they have in place. <laughs> I I always thought that what's happening here is there used to be a lot of call for uh, Blade Runners, um, and now there isn't. And now there isn't. That it's very rare that um, that replicants misbehave. Yeah, be, 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 because I think it's been like a few years, maybe since the last incident. Exactly. So it's like. Um, is is this Don't say Robocop. No. <laughs> I I haven't really I've read part of the graphic novel or the comic book Watchmen. Of Watchmen. Yeah. Where uh, superheroes it, it, have been outlawed. Superheroes have been outlawed. So like they're not exactly kind of uh, in the best of of graces of health or yeah. yeah. So yeah, and, and it feels like that. It's like Blade Runners are are are, are kind of no more, longer mostly of use. redundant. Yeah. yeah, no longer of use. And maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's why there is only one. Maybe that's why it's the only one that he can he can retire that he can call on that Brian can call on. Yeah. But when I was, what I was saying is one of the things that I like about is the suggestion that Tyrrell's figured out the way to make the replicants more convincing. Which, by the way, why would you want to make the replicants more convincing? Like, what is the purpose? Like, given that... Like, oh, you, it's, got... it's, it's Tyrrell's corporate philosophy is more human than human. Yeah, which, which plays into this idea of what does being human actually mean. But, like, if, if replicants have, like, held mutinies and they're outlawed and they're illegal on Earth, why would you want to design more convincing ones? Why would you want to make one that could be that could pass more easily as as a human? Well, that plays into um, it makes it more <laughs> it makes it more um, sensible that um, that Deckard is a a replicant. If 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 the criteria for being a replicant is to be like more like a human, um, <laughs> so like. So, for example, oh, you, you, a normal a... human would get the crap beaten out of him by one of these stronger replicants. Yes. So, therefore, Deckard is, Deckard is a replicant. A more human replicant would have flaws like drunkenness yeah. or sheer desperation or loneliness. Yeah. Ergo, Deckard is a replicant. Um, but, yeah, no. That's she, not... And, by the way, he pushes her around in spite of the fact that she's a replicant. And as he was doing the, that, I was thinking, don't do that. Because first of all, like, it's nothing gives you that right. <laughs> yeah, it's also and secondly, she couldn't she crush... just rip you limb from limb? Like, that's part of what... say, time to die. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love, I love Batty. But um, that is one of the things that I think is, is a point. Like, when, when Terrell is trying to make them more human, I think that it's, argu- it's arguable that he tones down, say, the strength. 
or the things that make them different. So he gives them memories. He gives them implanted memories. I actually like the... I would, um, I would like to think that Rachel could, if she wanted to, just... Tear. Grab, <laughs> Break like, Deckard like put, a wishbone. Put her two hands, like, into his mouth and just tear his his, his, his head in half. You know that during the scene where um, Daryl, Hannah, and Harrison Ford were filming that scene where he was caught between her legs? Oh, yeah. And she grabs him by the nose with her fingers? <laughs> Apparently Harrison Ford insisted that she really do that. Yeah. Yeah, apparently she felt really bad because she gave him massive nosebleeds afterwards. But uh, yeah, apparently he insisted that during that scene she really do it. Sick bastard. Oh, whatever works. Um, but um, I, I like the idea. And it's one of those things that's been heavily influential in genre fiction and stuff like Westworld. Westworld is basically built around... Westworld borrows quite a lot from Blade Runner. So it borrows, for example, the idea of photos that trigger memories. And the idea that photos... Like, one of the suggestions in Blade Runner is that photos are important to replicants because they provide a sense of history that the replicants don't have. So, like, because you can photograph something, it's real and it's historic. And so if you have photographs, your three years seem like more than just three years. Your four years seem like more than just four years. And you have memories that ground you so that you don't have to learn all your emotional responses from, from nothing. Which is what, like, what Harrison Ford's character suggested in Westworld, which was this idea that you allow... The, the replicants or the, the robots to complete the hosts to evolve as they go so they continually learn and process human experiences and stuff like that and I think that like I think it's a very interesting way of looking at identity like which which is a recurring theme of like we talked about how robot stories are about like oppression and slavery and stuff like that I also think they play into ideas of identity and self just as much so this idea of it's not necessarily how we treat we how we treat the other is, is an important theme so how we treat uh, women or, or minorities or, or disadvantaged groups in the society that disenfranchised, but also even how we categorize ourselves as, as having that innate quality and whether or not it's a sense of memory or identity that provides us with that. So whether or not it is is the concrete artifacts of like the photos, like he has the, the wonderful photo that he turns over. We spent like five minutes trying to read the back of the photo that Rachel gave him to prove her identity. She tried she wanted to prove she was a person by giving him a, a photo of herself she came to him really vulnerable and crying, and yeah, he he's drunk, of course, and he's as sensitive as and ever. It, yeah, and it upsets her more. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, sorry, this is a joke, crazy joke. You know me, joker yeah, that I am. It's a funny joke. Yeah, it laugh. It's funny, but um, I'm it's not a th- bad joke. I'm sorry. And there's... hey, don't cry. <laughs> And the idea of the, the picture is really weird, the picture that she gives him, because it's a picture of somebody sitting on the porch of what looks like a country house, despite the fact that there's no indication in the rest of the film that, like, countryside actually exists. Oh, no, no. It, um, uh, it's just, like, Escape from L.A. Yeah. Um, L.A. had a big um, earthquake in the year 2000 or 2001 and became this terrible dystopian um, landscape yeah yeah where 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 only like the the, the worst the, the worst unfortunate thing. would be sent yeah and the only person who has a nice gaff is tyrell is he is tyrell and tyrell tyrell's sister who owns a nice little cottage somewhere yeah but no so i i quite like that but i mean rucker Hauer is amazing yeah yeah and he 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 has little bits of poetry he does, he quotes, he misquotes Blake at one point, for example. Um, Hauer himself is actually a poet. He writes, you can read poetry on his website, which we'll include in the show notes. Uh, but he does, he misquotes Blake at one point. I feel like he's, he's paraphrasing Blake. Like, yeah. like, like he's, he's, um, well, it's he's, fiery he's, the angels, he's using yeah. it to, 
to relate to his to, situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is, is arguably something that it's, it's a reflection of what um, what Rachel does with her memories. Like the idea that memories contextualize uh, these these robots, but these replicants, apologies. But the idea that maybe art does something similar for, for Batty, that Batty sort of understands himself through it. Like Batty at one point drives a nail through his hand in, in not the most subtle bit of Christian iconography. Um, in order to restore feeling, but it's also a very, very powerful religious religious image, along with the white dove. Ooh. You didn't get that when he drove when he drove the nail through it. No, no, I didn't at all. Okay, well, I mean, like, there's there's this theme of religion that runs through it. So he murders Tyrrell, who is basically like like God, uh, and he describes him as his maker. And so, in doing so, he replaces God. He he sort of becomes this this new evolution, this this birth of something new or exciting. There's also in the stories that Rachel tells about her memories that she had that she never told anybody, the image of the spider being devoured by its children, which is in some way like a metaphor for like how humanity might be supplanted or replaced by these replicants of these artificial beings. That's why we built the design flaw into them, where they only live four years so they can't challenge us or rise up like bad children. But there's also even this this idea of the nail through the hand, which is like the son of God. So and Batty is presented as Tyrrell's son. Like Tyrrell speaks to him as like the the prodigal son who returns. He welcomes him. He's he's you know he speaks to him as a child. I think I think there's I think that's a very definite conscious choice. And there's this idea of like Batty finding freedom in those final moments as he releases the dove, which is again not the most uh, not the most uh, subtle of imagery. Uh, but which conveys a sort of a, a religious theme. So Re- Ridley Scott didn't want him to have the dove. And also he was like, hold on, Rucker, what are you doing with that nail? Let me just try something. <laughs> yeah. You can leave <laughs> like, it in the film. Put <laughs> this nail <laughs> through his through hand. His hand. It's, like, like, it's like, Rucker, what What the hell are you doing? Oh, it's it's, 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 it's going to be very iconic. It's, 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 uh, yeah. it's it's a whole Jesus thing, you know? It it's all like, makes oh, sense. All right, Rucker. You win this round. No, I suspect that may that would have been in, obviously, earlier because it was done via makeup <laughs> or stuff like that. I also just like the idea of Rucker Howard showing up with the dove. Um, it's I like, like the thought of him sticking a nail to it. Like, <laughs> because he thinks it makes a nice symbolism. Improvisational kind of choice. I, I like really him showing up with these Scott being, where'd you get the dove rucker? He's like, no, no, no questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, can we do a take without the dove? No. <laughs> Why would I let you do that? You know that the shot was, uh, the shot was famously done. That was the last shot that was done. They ran over budget while they were filming and the producers were breathing down their neck and threatening to kick them out. So apparently they shot against time to get that scene done. So if you watch the theatrical cut, you can actually see the dove flapping against the matte background. With dawn rising over the soundstage in the background. Ooh. Yeah. The only location work that was actually done on the film was, uh, I believe, Brian's office was shot in Union Station in Los Angeles. Um, and I believe also that the Bradbury building uh, played itself. So this is the building where J.F. Um, Sebastian lives. Right. And it's, it's a fixture of film. So have you seen like 500 Days of Summer? I have. It pops up in there. Have you seen The Artist? I it's actually more memorable. That. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the artist, it's the bit where he runs up and down the stairs meeting his love. Oh. Okay. He runs, and it's it's shot in in sort of this nice aspect ratio. But it's the same set. It's basically it's an old Los Angeles building. But they had they could only shoot at night, so they had to basically come in, make it look terrible, cover it with rain and water and dirt and crap, and then get all that cleared out by six thirty the following morning. Wow. But it's it's one of the first films that was animated by an artificial intelligence. 
So somebody programmed a computer to watch Blade Runner and to draw it. And basically you can, and I'll put it in the show notes, you can watch how this computer saw Blade Runner. So it focused on the aspects of the frame that drew its attention. So you can see where its eye is focused at a given moment. And you can see basically how a computer algorithm watches Blade Runner. Which is, is a little terrifying, because we are getting closer and closer to the stage where we will have artificial intelligence. But to the point where like a computer can recognise from a still shot, or from a sequence of still shots, or from a narrative or a story being told, where it needs to be paying attention at each given moment in, in the film. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. So when he's running around at the end, he, he, he actually comes closest, especially in his legs, to being like... Robocop? Twi- no. <laughs> to being 21st century, like... Um, oh, yeah, we were uh, talking about this. Yeah, we, we were talking about how There's Harrison Ford is in 80s shape. Yeah, because there's a moment where, um, and it's a moment where the love theme plays, which is the only time you hear a saxophone on the soundtrack. You can yeah. tell that's when characters are about to get busy, because it's the moment when the synthesizer gives way to the saxophone. Um, but there's a moment where he gets undressed in the bathroom after he's been beaten by Leon. And yeah. he actually, ta- and of course he, he responds to this as he responds to any other crisis by drinking. There's a nice shot of him having a shot where the blood seeps back into the glass. Yeah. Which, by the way, is that painful? Is drinking alcohol with a bloody lip painful? Oh, um... This is my vicarious drinking. Alcohol can can deaden... uh... Okay, I thought it stung. I thought it was like a disinfectant. Yeah, I mean... Well, it's not like... It's not like TCP. Okay. It might do a little bit. Maybe to begin with. I I don't know. Yeah. Let's... We'll uh, test this. We'll test this after. That was going to <laughs> suck me in the jaw. And, and then, then I'm, I'm going to have, have a have shot. some uh, vodka. And no, we'll... you're not allowed to drink, Darren. Okay, them's the rules. Yeah. Remember what happened last time. Darren gets very angry. I do get very aggressive. But there is a scene where he's in the bathroom and he gets changed. He takes off his shirt. And myself and Andrew were both sort of taken aback by this because recent movies have sort of conditioned us to expect when a man takes off his shirt in a film... It yeah. should look like, like a Greek sculpture. Yeah. It should look like, you know, the abs should be chiseled and the abs should have like chiseled six packs yeah. themselves. I feel, I feel like there was something very um, now, achievable yeah. about, about Harrison Ford's... Now, to be clear, like, he looks he, good. He was, he was looking great, yeah. Looks, yeah. But it was, it was, it was um, uh, 80s Yeah, it was a um, more realistic shape. body model. Yeah. Which is it's interesting because, I mean, it's, it's one of those things like you hear about unrealistic sort of female body image, right? Yeah. And... and I, li- I feel like the response in the past 20 years has been Hollywood has heard the complaints about unrealistic female bodies and its response has not been, OK, let's move towards realistic bodies. It's been, no, why can't men also have unrealistic body expectations? Yeah, it's 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 one way of moving towards uh, equality. Towards equality. Yeah. <laughs> and the most unlikely and unreasonable. I, form of equality, I, right? I, I kind of I kind of like, to be honest, that that, that there is now this whole sort of. Because I, no, I, there, there is. I feel like look, look, looking back on it, Sean Young, yeah. um, is 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 just as a beautiful, kind of then yeah. as, as, as as she would be considered now. Yeah, as we expect. Yeah, yeah Where, whereas where, whereas Harrison Ford so um, gets away with almost. Get, yeah, yeah, which would 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 not really be be putting any, in that sort of effort. anything special. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable complaint, and I do think whereas like these these days you have to go to like a Chris, Chris Pratt, Pratt level. We 
Yeah. I feel it's kind of awkward that we were both sitting there watching the scene thinking of Chris Pratt. <laughs> we're both thinking of Chris Pratt, yeah. Cause I think Chris Pratt's probably the best example because he was a lovable show on Parks and Recreation. Yeah. Like where he had a bit of... He was like Harrison Ford body on Parks and Recreation. <laughs> and well, then... probably um, like a, an, an ectomorph version of, of Harrison Ford. <laughs> a loose yeah. clay version yeah. of him. He wasn't quite Briant level, no. let's put it that way. But uh, and then he sort of developed into Ryan Gosling levels of Blade Runner protagonist yeah. sculpted hot because there is because there's a moment in is it is it Jurassic no it's it was um, there's a moment in Guardians it was of the Guardians Galaxy. of the Galaxy where he takes off his shirt and you're like where the hell did that come from that's insane <laughs> yeah like, I think he had, have, they, the, have they CGI'd his part, face onto Chris Hemsworth part of body? the world had been prepared for that because I think he had posted some photos on Instagram right. yes yeah. we are not Instagram followers Chris, so we, yeah. we had our worlds rocked in that moment what's his name Chris Hemsworth and all the um, Chris's Chris Pines Chris and Chris Evans, Evans. Yeah. yeah yeah I feel bad for Chris Evans because Chris Evans is like perfectly like if I looked like Chris Evans I would never work out again because I reckon entropy would like mean that I would die handsome he has the sh- 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 shoulders but he has uh, and waist ratio of a Dorito. <laughs> no, that's Hemsworth. Hem- isn't Hemsworth the one who looks like a Dorito? No, I, f- I, f- I feel like um, uh, the, that's something they said about Chris Evans. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I, Evans, I... I... It's ama- amazing the bodily transformation he made for Captain America, where he lost all that oh, weight. weight. And then put it back <laughs> on immediately. He, he, he went down to like... Uh, one, like one, one kilo 125 pounds I thought it was a single kilo <laughs> yeah. um, it was like a bag of sugar yes a single bag of sugar <laughs> uh, I'm just amazed that he, he did all that and he bulked up so quickly during the shoot that they could they could sh- like five inches tall <laughs> but somehow his head was the same size ah <laughs> um, uh, good old CGI yeah um, <laughs> But I, I do, I do feel, because I remember watching that and I sort of, I remember seeing Blade Runner. And sure, then, surely if they were going to do that and make a, a really scrawny version of Chris Evans, surely they could have done a CGI buff version of Chris Evans and Chris Evans could be like, <laughs> so I don't need to do anything, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, spot on. <laughs> like, why did he need to go to the gym at all? Because if, it's if, healthy if, and it's, it's, you can budget that to the production. Um <laughs> It's like, Hugh, it's like Hugh Jackman. It's like you look at Hugh Jackman and you think there is no way that a human body like um, needs <laughs> to be that well. <laughs> uh, Ryan Reynolds wants there to be a Wolverine Deadpool um, uh, <laughs> crossover. And he wants, he wants Hugh Jackman to wear like the yellow suit with the mask <laughs> and everything. And, he, and he, he, he thinks it would be very funny if... If Wolverine was like seriously overweight because because you Jackman couldn't be arsed <laughs> putting in all of that workout anymore, <laughs> like because how difficult must it be for you Jackman to do, like every time there's a Wolverine movie, it's like yeah. oh my god, yeah. like I'm sure he already has to do a little bit of that anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, because we look at stuff like the two fifties prisoners, for example. Yeah, and it's like he looks like he's you know he's very well muscled, but he's yeah. like a regular. He's like. I feel like Hugh Jackman in Prisoners might be attainable for me. <laughs> it's funny the the way the way people talk about um, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger movies where where we're say say he's playing um, a kind a congressman of a kind or... of yeah or like a a, a, a doctor, a doctor yeah. who who's in some weird field of gynecology. It's like how often does this guy work out? <laughs> and like he, even kindergarten cop makes some sense because he's, he's a police officer. He's he's a police officer, but maybe he's some special kind of like police officer where they have to be. Like four hundred pounds, but yeah, he's 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 not like when people see him as as a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> Does like, nobody oh, raise an eyebrow? He must be an undercover cop, maybe. Yeah. But um, and I, just to be clear on this, like this is this is um, this is the level of objectification that female bodies have been receiving since the dawn of time. Yeah. So, I, so I, I mean, I I I I. Um, so I mean, like it probably like, hasn't gotten to the point yet with men where we feel the the um, anything or, uh, resembling. Yeah, the, where um, like I I I quite like the whole kind of um, you feel flattered by it. The 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 yeah the the whole sort of culture of 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 men now where where there's like expectations on us to have like great bodies and that. I think I th- I th- I think it's, it it can be a kind of an interesting project. To take on, yeah, and, and then I, you look at somebody like Chris Pratt, and you think, like, yeah, if he, he can do it, yeah, I can do it, pretty much. And I, I know with with like things I've done before, like like when I ran uh, marathons before, like there was no way I would be able to do that, it, it, and like I was the least likely person to have been able to run a marathon. But it's just a thing, like where you spend like eight months, kind of like doing it, getting your body into yeah. position. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there will come a time when 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 men will be like, "Why do we put ourselves up to these standards?" But for the moment, it's just kind of. Yeah. It, it, it hasn't lost its novelty. <laughs> I like the idea that the novelty is the key point here, not not the fact that it exists as part of a wider social infrastructure of oppression. And, uh... <laughs> Andrew just wants to look good. Yeah, yeah. I want my value to be derived from how well I My physical appearance. Yeah. Um, no, so that that did jump out at me, to be fair. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> but I think... I think so that sort of sums it up in terms of, like, in terms of uh, what we took away from it. I like that we spent as much time talking about Harrison Ford's dad bod um, as, as we did. It wasn't really a dad bod as well. The... the I was looking at something this morning as well that was talking about... Um, like uh, when people talk about dad bods, they're generally talking about the likes of um, Seth Rogen and James Corden. Really? That's not <laughs> um, okay. Not really. No, mm. is it? I didn't that, think that. that. I thought dad like... bod. I thought dad bod was just like it's a, it's an average like average non. It's like pre pre Jurassic World Chris Pat or pre Guardians of the Galaxy Chris Pat. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, how different is that though from from a from a Harrison Ford or for James Corden? There, there's some there's a lot of talk about men's bodies. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I would be I would be careful how we pitch this, Andrew. I would be very careful about how we pitch this. That's <laughs> right. Having to, having talked enough about Harrison Ford's body uh, and so on and so forth, um, let's talk about the the uh, Blade Runner's place in the IMDb two hundred and fifty. Right. So basically, ah, cool. How well? First of all, do you think that Blade Runner belongs in the top two hundred fifty movies of all time? Is it among the top two hundred fifty movies you have ever seen? Well, oh, is you it don't... is it among the top two hundred fifty movies I've ever seen? Probably, yeah. like, like, yes, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know if it's if it's 
if it deserves to be in the top 250 movies ever made. But it's certainly very, like, along with Aliens, it's very um, iconic. Oh, it's massively um, influential. Like, I mean, yeah. you can see its influence in stuff like, we're talking about Westworld, but even stuff like, say, Blade Runner. Like, Edward James almost um, was convinced to sign on to Blade Runner by Ronald D. Moore by arguing that it was an extension of the themes and ideas and even the production design of Blade Runner. Like, You you said that Edward A. almost signed James. on to do um, Blade Runner. Oh, sorry. Apologies. Oh, okay. He signed on to do Battlestar Galactica because ah. producer, writer and producer Ronald D. Moore, who worked on the Star Trek shows and developed the, the remake of Battlestar Galactica, convinced him that it would be a spiritual successor to Blade Runner. And it is. It deals with these themes and ideas. Like, there's a wonderful moment in one of the speeches, in one of the things where Batty's little speech about how he's seen things that people can no longer imagine or that humans can't imagine that exist beyond the human frame of reference. There's a moment where late in, in Battlestar Galactica, one of the robots talks about how he wants to experience life beyond what what mankind have designed. So he wants to he wants to hear X rays. He wants to see Never gamma seen, rays. Um, Battlestar Galactica. Galactica no. I wholeheartedly recommend it. The final maybe the final last second half of this last episode is a bit rough, uh, but I think that how many episodes are there? There's like seventy odd. Seventy. Yeah. Odd. Yeah. Okay. It's. I think it's. I think it's fantastic. Um. It's. It's a logical extension of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, actually. Really? Um, it is perhaps... I thought it was something that happened... Like, weren't there Battlestar Galactica's like 30 or 40 years oh, ago? Oh, there were, yeah. Yeah. But the the remake is... It's from it's produced by Ronald D. Moore and it's got a bunch of Deep Space Nine writers on it. And it's basically it's an extension of stuff that he wanted to do with Star Trek but was never allowed to do. So it's 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 dealing with like these big themes and ideas and stuff. Yeah. Um, and like what it means to be human and all this sort of stuff and what it means to be a robot or a replicant or a, a you know... And it's got this idea, one of his big innovations, in fact, when he did Battlestar Galactica, when he did the remake, was to suggest that Cylons were not just, like, Robocop, 80s-style cyborgs with sort of, like, chrome finishes, the ones you were talking about, but to say that instead they could be organic, flesh and blood, and distinguishable from humans. So, 138. Which, which was it that he took from it. All right, so do you think it belongs to be... So you think? Sorry, it, I, I did ask. No, no, you did ask. You did ask. Apologies. But... How would this, you rank it then? This, I I'm worried that my list that 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 our listeners will will think that this is some kind of abusive relationship. Because Andrew, Andrew hasn't I, pushed me against any walls or blocked any exits or I, told me to kiss him. Um, no, I haven't. I don't need to. <laughs> the, 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 the whenever 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 I I say, all right, um, shut your face, Darren. And your your reaction is generally, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I figure if it's interesting for you... Sensitive soul. I figure it's, if it's interesting for you to hear, it'll be interesting for the audience to hear. If it's not interesting for you to hear, it's not interesting for the audience to hear. I feel like you represent, you speak for the people, Andrew. No, no, no. I, 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 I think the people want more Darren. I think the people have enough Darren to last them a lifetime. But it is 138. So would you say higher, lower, or about right? Right, so so what are the movies there? Okay, it's lower than... Ran, for example, which, which we saw. Which we saw. Yeah. It's higher than... I think I've seen How's Moving Castle. Uh, Incendies, A Beautiful Mind. Um, yeah, Stuck and Two Smoking Barrels. V for Vendetta, The Wolf of Wall Street. You've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Gran Torino. The last oh, one excuse we've, me. The last one we've covered on this that it's higher than is, is actually... We haven't covered that many movies. Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Yeah. Okay, which is is one actually. So it, it's 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 higher. It's higher. It's lower than the last movie we talked about, and it's higher than the movie we talked about directly before that. Yeah. And do you feel that's about right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, um, it's likely that it'll stay there for longer than... Than uh, Gone Girl, for yeah. example. Um, and Ran, I think, will stay there about the same time, because Ran came out at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think... I... So it's one for the ages. Like, like um, it, se- it seems like um, these kinds of movies are considered um, classics, I yeah. guess. Well, enduring. Like, I mean, as we talked about its influence in the shadow of the cast and like the impression that it made. Like, I think that people point to... Blade Runner... Actually, this is something I wanted to talk about uh, earlier, and I'm not sure about... So this is probably the place to talk about it, right? It is a movie that got a critical and commercial drubbing on release. Right. It went through a terrible production cycle in which the writer and the director found themselves at odds with a studio that had no idea what to do with it. So it arrived, it was dead on arrival, it was hated. And over the following years, it was rehabilitated and it was reinvented. And it sort of became, through reputation, this cult and beloved classic film, right? So I'm wondering... Maybe that will happen with our Christmas episode. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering it's, it's a it, wonderful life which very few people have listened to actually maybe. it's it's our least popular podcast uh, which I, I can't maybe, explain maybe we should have went with Die Hard well don't worry we'll go with it next year it's either that or Santa Claus versus the Martians but I wonder like these days is it possible for a film to do that like is it possible for a film that's released this today in this cycle of media, in this cycle of instant judgments, to be reappraised. Like, I mean, do you think that it's possible for a film, like, if it were released today, and if the internet came down and said it was terrible, do you think the internet would change its mind on something like this? Because, I mean, the thing about Blade Runner is it arrived before the internet. It arrived before the IMDb 250 list. So it had already undergone that rehabilitation by the time that this, this list began, and by the time that people were talking about it online. Like, do you think that now, because we have the internet that codifies these things and keeps them sort of constant and writes them down in what is effectively stone, or to quote the social network, pen rather than pencil, do you think that that limits the capacity for something like Blade Runner to be reevaluated? No, because I, I I think these things are always reevaluated. For 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 a start, these these movies. Um, movies these days tend to be evaluated before they're even yeah, released. released. Um, and uh, there's always kind of judgment about um, that, the, that the new James Bond is not going to be any good because it's Daniel Craig and he's blonde. Or the new Star Wars movie is not going to be any good because stormtroopers aren't black. Or, but, or, or that's, um, but when those things land, the, the, it, the it, reaction is immediate. So, for example, in that case, people like The Force Awakens immediately or people liked Casino Royale immediately. It isn't like... People had no idea what to make of it. Or they didn't hate Ghostbusters as much <laughs> as, as they thought they would, but also didn't like it as much as they hoped they would. Yeah, either. like um, uh, Passengers is. Oh is, my god, have you seen Passengers? I haven't. Okay, that, that's that's a movie. Speaking that's of out Chris at the Pratt moment. and his body <laughs> <laughs> and um, objectification of women, it's a nice intersection of themes for Passengers. Yeah. Uh, which we won't be talking about on the 250, unfortunately, because I feel like we'd have a lot of interesting things to say. It's a terrible film. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, the, like... Um, Sorry to interrupt you. That will probably be re- rediscovered by horrible people um, in, in years from now, and they'll, they'll, they'll reevaluate it. So that's your long-term bet, is you think in, in 10 years' time... When we finally finished all 250 movies on the 250, our last new entry will be Passengers. It, it, no, I, I, I think the Passengers will have a cult following. Okay. Um, 
but you don't think that it'll be uh, it'll be appraised as a classic. You don't think it'll be like praised done really badly, um, which is good. And which it, is which which is good. It's, it's a, one it, of those from, films. from what I've heard about it. It's got a, it's a big nope. It's a big nope. And here's the thing: like it's marketed. It's it's one of those things where the script is structured and the story is constructed in such a way that it, there's a terrible thing about it that everybody knows about, but I won't mention because spoilers. Yeah. Um, and you can tell that the moment that it was screened in front of anybody who was not a man, that person recognized the problem immediately and said, okay, well, look, you filmed it, you produced it, it's edited. What can we do to minimize this? I know, let's pretend that this horrible thing that you wrote into the story, thinking it was an awesome thing, let's call that a twist. So right. we can't really talk about it. Uh, and so that, you know, when people complain about it, they'll go, ah, but it'll kind of spoil the twist if we talk there, about it. I mean, there was a whole lot of horrible stuff in Gone Girl. Um, yes. But, but, there, there, there but was, Gone Girl was, was there smart was about it. In it. Yeah, that it, that it was kind of a clever movie. Yes. Passengers is not a clever movie. Okay. I um, haven't seen it. Okay, sorry. All right, then. So with that in mind, then let's take a look at the in and out chart. Now, it's been a while since we've recorded. Uh, wow. It's been a long, long time. So let's take a look and look at what's come in and what's gone out since the last time we recorded together. Um, so in terms of stuff that's come in, uh, La La Land has come in, which we will have covered by the time. It's project. lovely to see so many new movies coming in. It really is. Well, it means that we've sort of... You'll be listening to this podcast sometime in the middle of 2017 as a result yeah. of all the, new pod, all the new stuff that's come in that we've had to talk about. But in terms of since the last time we recorded, La La Land has come in. Rogue One has come in, and you'll, you'll already have, have, have heard, heard our Rogue opinion. Rogue One and La La Land before before you hear this one. Yeah. Um, and also PK, which is an Indian comedy from 2014, which is another one of the interesting influx of. It looks of good, films. based purely on the poster that Andrew's seen, which involves uh, a man and a woman wearing uh, bicycle helmets, and a man is carrying a briefcase. Uh, a man is carrying a briefcase, yes. Yes, which, by the way, I love that. That sounds like a title for a more more artsy film. A man is carrying a briefcase from the makers of A Girl Walks Home it's, Alone at Night. It's uh, it's a stranger in a the city. A girl si has no name. Yes. A stranger in the city asks questions no one has asked before. His childlike curiosity will take him on a journey of love, laughter, and letting go. So, yeah, so that's what's come in. In order and to... It's, uh, it's number... Oh, number two fifty. Yeah, so, so it's just cr it's uh, dancing it's just at the edge. about in. And in order, La La Land on the other hand, <laughs> La La Land about has, this. Yeah, La La Land has done rather well for itself. Rather well. Rather well. I think. Have, have you seen it? I've seen it, and I love it. Um, yeah, you said it was magical. I think, and really, I saw a trailer for it, and I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> based purely on the trailer, for it. Ba ba based purely on the trailer. Let's, how, let's, how would you guess? How would you guess? Uh, 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 People probably know by now, by the time they're listening to this. This has struck us as a bit of a surprise. Would it, is that where it came in at? It came in at 30. Oh, oh, hold on. Actually, that's the 1st of January 2017. Yeah. Did, does it not go back further? No, that was when it came in. Oh, okay. Its first appearance was the 1st of January 2017. Um, and, and it came in as, as the 30th best movie of all 30th time. Best move, 30th best movie. 30th best. Oh, God. Best movie of all time. Yeah. And up to 28. And at the moment, it's at 25th. It's the 25th, 25th best, best movie, movie of, of all time. time. 
Which so, is, by the way, let's just take a look at what's in company with La La Land at the moment, right? Because we're not actually going to do this on the podcast. It's directly below It's a Wonderful Life, which we covered for the Christmas podcast, but nobody listened to. <laughs> um, and it's directly above The Usual Suspects. And it's above Leon as well. It's bumped Leon down one as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's like, it's a phenomenal success for it's that. It's like it was made in the 90s. <laughs> it is. You'd almost swear, looking at the chart, that it was made in the 90s. Um, and it, it's interesting to see, because it is one of those films that... I have a list of films that I watch uh, to see whether or not they're going to come in. Because we've talked about this before. The way it comes in, it has to be over eight. And it has to have more than 25,000 votes. Right. So the issue with La La Land was always going to be when will it hit 25,000 votes. That's why it came in at 30. Because it's always, it's around 8.9. or Sorry, it's at 8.6 on the weighted scale. Uh, but on its actual page here, it's at 8.8. Whoa. Um, which is a phenomenal high score uh, for it. So as I was watching that, I was waiting to see where it would come in. Um, and it came in at 30, which astounded me. I, I personally, I love it dearly. It's the best of the best picture contenders that I've seen this year. But I, I, I'm not sure I would consider it the 30th best movie ever made. It's it's incredible now when I think of a movie and it doesn't get into the uh, top 250. I, I think to myself... That must be a load of... <laughs> it must be a heap of nonsense. Yeah, when we talk, like, we're talking about silence. Even, it's not even good enough to be one of the top 250 <laughs> movies of all time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, this is the thing we were talking about where people form an instant reaction to something. Because I reckon, like, La La Land, no matter how much of a backlash it experiences, because it's at 25 now, it will be in the 250 for at least the next two years. It's only 25 as well. It's, it's no Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, which it's as not, everyone it's knows... It's no The Godfather 1 of 2. As everyone knows, or The Dark Knight, or as, which as everyone knows is the best movie of all time. <laughs> um, and so let's take a look at what else has come in, because we've had another uh, recent entry as well, which is Rogue One. Rogue uh, One. Which has had a sort of... It's had the opposite trajectory. It came in quite high. It came in about, uh, it came in about 207, but it climbed to 147. Right, um, and then it's sort of it's it's petered out and it's God dwindling, down, yeah, massively. a lot. Now so it's starting to kind of is it starting to level out a little bit? It seems the descent seems to be slowing. It, yeah, it might still it might still go out of the two fifty before uh, I would, before very long. I would be surprised if it's still in the two fifty by the time that episode eight is released. Yeah, because um, it, it, it's 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 nearly out already. It is. Yeah, I mean, and it, um, I mean, come on, it's only the two hundred thirty second best movie of all time. Why are we wasting time with it? Is Deadpool still in the two fifty? No, Deadpool dropped out before Christmas. Right. Although you know that <laughs> I like that Andrew. That that makes Andrew happy. You know that they're that. Well, vault... no, I'm I'm not happy about that actually. They're, they're, we could have could have had people on to talk about Deadpool. I'm sure there would have been lots of people. Well, Deadpool would have been fun to talk about, but I mean. Um, and this is going to date the podcast horribly. I may even cut it out. You know that Vulture is heavily pushing Ryan Reynolds for an Oscar nomination. For Deadpool. For Deadpool? Yeah. Under what category? Best Actor. Vulture is arguing that uh, Reynolds may have a chance of sneaking into the category in the fifth position. Uh, I don't see it happening, and I suspect history will vindicate me rather than Vulture. But it's, it's, absolutely, it's a recurring theme of their... And I think, it's a, I, think I hope it's a joke. But it's a recurring Oscars theme. Oscars are very snooty, aren't and they? serious. Yes, yeah. And he might have a chance of getting a supporting actor nomination where he is supporting actor in it, like say Heath Ledger did for The Dark Knight or whatever. Doesn't he get some kind of cancer in the movie? <laughs> oh my God, Andrew, <laughs> you've cracked it. He does. He does. He does. Which... So he is going to win an Oscar for 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 his his um, his nuanced, heartbreaking uh, yeah, performance, his nuanced and realistic. Yeah. Um... Amazing. 
I think you've cracked it, Andrew. Yeah. Um, so we'll listen back when this podcast <laughs> is released. Let myself and Andrew know which one of us was right about Ryan Reynolds' Oscar chances. Um, in terms of stuff that made room for the 250, or made room for these three new arrivals, uh, there was actually two um, Indian films. There's Queen. Oh, uh, I thought that was the, that the Queen. Queen. Yeah. No, um, the Queen. I don't even know if the Queen... I don't think the Queen is on the 250, which is a shame, because I, I love the Queen dearly. No, the Queen is... <laughs> By that, you mean the movie? I mean the movie, not, 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 the, not the woman who voted for Brexit. Um, or a woman who would have voted for Brexit. No, I mean the, the Queen, the movie directed by Stephen Frears, starring Helen Mirren and Michael Sheen, who is also in Passengers. Um, I like the Passengers is like the in-and-out charts version of Robocop. Everything can be brought back to Passengers. Who was so, in Passengers? Um, Michael Sheen. He plays oh, the yes, creepy yes, bartender. Yes, yes, yes. And it will be a much better film if he played the romantic lead as well. Um, he, he's playing the, the bartender from The Shining. Please. Yes, he really yeah. is. Can I get you a drink? So, um, um, then, Dil, Dil Chata High. Which is another another Indian film. Um, it, is, it was higher before. It was, it was like it, 125 or something. It did. It jumped in around about 129. Okay. And its highest rank was 128. And it is the story of three inseparable childhood friends who are just out of college. Nothing comes between them until they each fall in love and their wildly different approaches to relationships create tension. I'd like to see that. I would. Well, it sounds like fun. One it's, things, out of, it's out of the 250 now, but maybe it'll be back. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I do... I do. We haven't seen any of these Indian No, movies. we haven't. Or any of the Turkish films that come I wonder well. what percentage of the... Um, of the 250 are, are like... Um, uh, Indian, Turkish, um, and from from yeah, well, we haven't. I mean, uh, one of the great things about doing this is the opportunity to sort of branch out, and like also, non-European movies, even also making room. Uh, and I'm sure none of us will be particularly disappointed about this. Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl, which I wonder if that has something to do with Johnny Depp's um, recent mishaps so are you in team for team bird it's like i don't think what, i don't think what, there's what, there's si- what one, side of this there's uh, only one right side on this andrew and that's the side that is not the abusive uh, not not i'm not on team deckard it's really weird i saw a news headline the other day about like something about and it actually used the words like team team Depp. Oh. yeah we did, we had this. It was, it, it, this was like you know, one of those 24-hour news uh, Oh, so it wasn't even like BuzzFeed stations. or something. It was like... It might have been like... I, I, I don't think what it was word Sky is lawyers? News. I think okay. it was RTE Where are his lawyers? Where it was it referring to his lawyers? Yeah. Like Depp's team. As <laughs> no, opposed to Team like, Depp. Team Depp. Definitely Team Depp. Uh, yeah. But I wonder if that it's made... people who think he's been Gone Girls. Yes, which we talked about on the podcast, which is the worst legacy of Gone Girls. The fact that Gone Girl is now a verb. Also because I don't like hyphenated verbs, but also because misogyny. But... Yeah, like, um, uh, Johnny Depp's star has waned, but... Uh, uh, Orlando Bloom Orlando... is as hot as ever. <laughs> yeah. Also known as that guy from Lord of the Rings we could convince to star in The Hobbit. Um, <laughs> the Hobbit. The Hobbit, if you will. So I, I think the only thing left to do, then, is to talk about what we're going to do next week. So, Andrew, I have a question, actually. Do we int- are we going to introduce the bottom 100 into this? 
He's because um... <laughs> I like how I make this your decision, by the way. Because it has been. It's Are been a while. Last, say, last yeah, time we did let's, was. Let's put the bottom one hundred. Let's uh, add an element of danger to it. Because like the last time we did it was uh, Kalobla. There were which... no. There, there, there are never any bullets in the in, <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in, the, gun. in this gun when we play Russian roulette. Yeah, that <laughs> makes let's... this really fun. <laughs> Let, let's actually take out the top two fifty. <laughs> no, we're not taking out the yeah, top two fifty. I feel like yeah, I feel like a bit. <laughs> I, I, I love, I love no, 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 I'm not suggesting we take out the 250, but there's no real tension in it where it's like, which of the best 250 <laughs> movies of all time are we going to watch next week? By the way, you say this every time. What a treat. <laughs> Everyone is like, oh, boring. Yeah, You're you just going to talk about another movie. Another good I movie. I want them to suffer. Yeah. And, and you say that every time until we land on a bomb 250 movie. And then the following week, you're like, Andrew, are we taking out the 100? We're taking out the 100. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Have you not forgotten the horror that was Lawnmower Man or Kalogan? I'll never forget. Well, you've got it there. So, Andrew, I'll let you click the button and random generate the number. Random number generator, twist, twist, twist. Show yeah. us a movie. <laughs> movie. Show us a movie. <laughs> Show us a movie on this list. Oh, and we didn't get a. We minus didn't get number. a minus number. So let's take a look and see what we're watching. Oh, wow. oh I love this movie. Yeah, so number one hundred and twenty-eight on the IMDb two hundred and fifty is. Inside Out. Yes. So let's take a look at what we're watching next week. So, how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure mm-hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. <clears throat> With a nice pass over <laughs> Reed, comes across center ice. <laughs> Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? School was great, all right? What was that? I thought you said we were gonna act casual. Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. All right, make a show of force. I don't wanna have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, old no, man. No, 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 breathe. What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. DEFCON 2. I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Yeah, well, look. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. Just shut up! Fire! That's it. Go to your room. The foot is down. The foot is down. Woo! Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. Come, fly with me, Gachinha. All right, then. Excellent. It is, and I love what we've both seen Inside Out. Yeah. Um, But I think, like, Louis Black's in it as well, and he's amazing. 
everybody's in it. Everybody in it who's amazing. But um, one of the things we were talking about last week was we were talking about like Blade Runner being a trailer that was produced by a studio that had no idea how to sell a difficult concept. Oh yeah. But Inside Out, the trailer that we just played there, which was the announced, the basically the first trailer for it, does an excellent job explaining what could be a very complex and very confusing um, concept in a way that is perfectly linear and makes a great deal of sense. Like, you watch the trailer... And also doesn't give very much away at all. No. So it's basically like, this is what the movie is about, this is the premise of the movie, this is what the movie's going to deal with, and no spoilers, or no no significant spoilers. It takes a scene out of context and explains the kind of... The dynamics of it. Yeah, and and the... the, um, Because in Inside Out... There, there's a a a a very specific kind of gimmick, I guess, yeah. if 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 you like that it that it that is taking um the idea of these uh, different parts of the mind where, where the internal voice yeah, exactly the voice um so like a person's made up of, of anger and and fear yeah and which ja- is which joy. is a very old idea it is a very old idea but it's expressed in a fascinating way and it's a great subject for a Pixar sort of animated cartoon yeah. And and yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Like, yeah. But I think the trailer lays it out beautifully. So, what are we doing this week, Andrew? So, what are you up to? S- setting up a Facebook group for the two fifty. Yay! <laughs> um, cool. Anything exciting or interesting happening in in your life? No, cool. no. I, I've I've. I've just finished professional exams. You're just starting what? professional I am also, exams. I'm starting professional exams. Although, trust me, by the time this podcast releases, we'll both know the outcomes to both of those. Both scenarios. of those, yes. Um, I am also releasing a book um, that's being released by McFarland Press. It's The X-Files. It's opening The X-Files, The Critical History of the Original TV Show. Um, if Which you is get, amazing. I'm actually very, very proud of it. Um, if you get a chance, it'll be out in June. Uh, talk to your local library and see if they can stock some copies. Um, or order it online from Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. Uh, opening the X-Files, written by Darren Mooney. Um, or, yep, yeah, so I'm really, really excited by that. I I'm, I'm, I'm put a lot of work into it. I I'm, I'm hope it turns out very well. I haven't got a print copy yet, but uh, looking forward to it. So you can reach me on Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney. You can hit Andrew up at... A Quiniuqua. That's A Q U I N N I Q U A. To talk about how we frequently no, confuse wait, robots. That was completely wrong. A Q U I N N I U Q A. Exactly. I know that we, 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 we at this point we've recorded more than twenty podcasts, and I feel like we're still getting to grips with your Twitter You can also follow the two fifty itself at at the two fifty, which is all all letters as opposed to numbers, unfortunately. Anyway, so that's it. We'll bid you farewell. Excellent. Uh, we'll bid you farewell into the world of 2017 as opposed to 2019. It doesn't actually look that much brighter outside, although there is a bit less smog. Yeah. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>